Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have somebody with me tonight who's a real smart guy. Uh, I've known of Ron for many years. I've read lots of his books. He's influenced me on Christian apologetics. He's like the go-to guy when you want to ask uh, biblical questions, apologetic-related questions, and he's uh, lectured on a lot of subjects. But we have lots of questions still, and one of the downsides of having a seminar is information overload sometimes and not pausing to ask questions. So I'm going to ask a series of questions uh, to our author. This is Dr. Ron Rhodes. Please welcome him tonight. Hi. Thank you very much. Now, Ron, I've known you as an author, as a theologian, as a uh, seminary professor, as a researcher, a Christian Research Institute years ago. But what I was amazed to find out <laughs> is that wasn't your first career. You were like in Hollywood? Yes. Early on, or television? Can you imagine me with long hair, with a guitar on my back? Yeah, I was just... Is that true? You had long hair? I had long hair. I was pursuing a Hollywood career, and in fact, I was uh, working with my brothers and sisters... Uh, there, there's eight of us. So, uh, and our okay. mother, our mother started us in music. She was a, a virtuoso pianist, and so we got the genetics. Oh, that's great! And so we uh, we formed a band at a very early age. What was the band called? We were called the Rhodes Kids. We were kids at the time, you know. Okay, the Rhodes Kids, Rhodes and it was kids. actually a Hollywood band. Like, a well, band you know, band? we started out with just uh, you know doing little lounge acts and stuff like that. But uh, actually, we were in Las Vegas at the time, and we have a good friend in the family, Wayne Newton. Really? Wayne Newton, of course. I'm sure most of you have heard of him. But Wayne Newton was doing the Las Vegas segment of the Jerry Lewis Telethon. And so uh, Wayne says, I can't promise you anything, but bring your instruments down to the studio tonight. So there were standing there with Barbara Streisand and Sammy Davis Jr. and all of these other celebrities. You know, our eyes are kind of like this, you know. And, um, you know, it was supposed to go back to New York with Jerry Lewis after Sammy Davis Jr. sang. So Wayne told Sammy Davis Jr. to say, we'll be right back with the Rhodes kids after he finished his song. So then Jerry comes on from New York and says, did you have one more act? And Wayne said, why, yes, we have one more act. And so we got snuck on to the Jerry Lewis Telethon. It was about really? 30, 30 million people watching. And you were on Merv Griffin, I hear. Well, so. after that, it snowballed. We did uh, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Dinah Shore, American Bandstand. Uh, How many of you have Thanks heard of those shows before? Great. Raise your hand. Okay, God bless you. I'm kind of dating myself by saying that. Yeah, uh, They're all members of AARP, probably. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it was really wild. Uh, you know, back in those years, it was just phenomenal what happened in a very quick fashion. You know, we had been doing small clubs, and then all of a sudden we were doing theaters with over 10,000 people. And we had a recording company that, that uh, did a $2 million promotion on us which we were amazed at. You know, we, we uh, were able to do a 50% headlining with Ann Margaret at the Las Vegas Hilton. And so we did 60 shows with Ann Margaret. And the, the uh, recording company brought in like 50 of the nation's top disc jockeys, as well as some of the top magazine editors for a one-week vacation in Las no Vegas. Kidding. And within three months, we were on the national charts with, with some of our music. So it's well, some of money, that money music is what it, what it was all about. Some of that music uh, you're going to hear right now. This is actually a little clip of the Rhodes Kids. Oh. 
That's me. Okay, that is incredible. <laughs> here's, what's, here's what's funny is the name of that song. Voodoo Magic. Voodoo, Voodoo Magic. Magic. And here I am today in apologetics. So something happened between then and now. What is it? What Brought happened? Up, well, I met Jesus. It, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, it, it was... It was awesome. In fact, um, uh, here we were doing all of these big shows. And so I'm backstage one day. It was in Burbank, California. And in Studio A was the Glenn Campbell show. And Studio B was the Merv Griffin show. So Pat Boone and his family, including his four daughters, uh, including Debbie. I knew Debbie before she was a big star. And so they're in uh, Studio A with Glenn Campbell's show. And we were in Studio B with the Merv Griffin show. And then backstage, just kind of like a common area. So there I am, just sitting with uh, Shirley Boone, Pat Boone's wife, and she starts talking about Jesus. And she started crying tears of joy. Hmm. I said, wow, this seems real. And she was talking about Bible prophecy. She was talking about the rapture of the church and the, the tribulation and the Antichrist and the second coming. I had never heard of any of this. And so long story short, uh, I ended up buying a bunch of books on Bible prophecy, particularly from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, folks like Dr. John Wolverd. Yes. I couldn't get enough. Mm -hmm. I was reading these books left and right, and I ended up becoming a believer out of that. Bible prophecy got my attention. Seeing Shirley cry tears of joy. How old were you? I was like uh, 18 years old. And I saw for the first time that Christianity wasn't just this set of doctrines, but rather there's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I wanted it. There was, you see, the backdrop is this. I had been working uh, with our family, with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. I mean, we, we did many shows with uh, uh, Elvis Presley. Uh, wow. Worked with, uh, um, uh, oh, let's see, B.B. King. You, you know, played with guitar, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, that's right. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Okay, I can't okay. say uh, Now I just make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Uh, so, but anyway, working with all of these stars, Jackie Gleason, Carol Burnett, you know, all of these people. And one of the things I started to see is that even though these people were really rich and really famous, they were just like me. Hmm. You know, you know, I guess I had thought in my head that the, this would be the epitome of the kind of person to emulate. Mm-hmm. And make no mistake about it, I do have respect for a lot of these people, but they've got problems just like all the rest of us. And they, they have turmoil that they're working through. And so even though they're very famous and very rich, they didn't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And so enter the Boone family with Shirley Boone talking about this real relationship with Jesus. That's something that I wanted. And one by one, my seven brothers and sisters trusted in Jesus Christ as well. It's awesome. That's great. The Lord just went, you know, touched all of this. And what's, what's particularly interesting is that my mom and dad thought we were going through a phase. Can you relate? Have you, have you ever encountered that? Your parents think that you're going through this phase and you, you'll outgrow this. Don't worry about it. And so all of us kids said, well, all we've got to do is pray for our parents and the Lord will open their eyes. Let me tell you, you want to know what happened? The Lord allowed the bottom to drop out from under their lives. The more we prayed, the worse things got. You see, we thought that the Lord would just open their eyes and that would be the end of it. But the Lord knew better. See, over the next half a year or so, God allowed everything to go wrong. And they hired divorce lawyers. They were going to get rid of each other. And, and the kids were right in the middle of all of this. 
And long story short, right at the height of all of this, uh, my dad comes to me and says, I need Jesus. Hmm. And it's the first time I ever, ever saw him cry. Hmm. He, he cried. He accepted Jesus. And my mom soon followed with a conversion to Jesus Christ. They fired their lawyers. They got back together and, and developed a very close relationship for the rest of their lives. And what's interesting is that we hauled them off to a Tim LaHaye Family Life Conference way back then. Little did I know that years later, I would be doing conferences around the country with Tim LaHaye. Yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> funny the way this kind of stuff works. And so the Lord worked a mighty healing in their lives. And then five families on our block became believers after witnessing what had taken place. So, you know, let me just tell this to you as an encouragement. Some of you may have family members that haven't trusted in the Lord, and it seems like their hearts are really hard. Let me tell you, Jesus can break through. Love can break through. And so just just keep on being a positive witness. I mean, we saw an incredible miracle. Well, anyway, I dumped Hollywood, went to seminary, and have been serving the Lord ever since and haven't looked back. Okay, so that's such a great story. Yeah. Pretty awesome. One of the encouraging things is we so often relegate Hollywood to a lost cause when, in fact, God has his witnesses right there in the midst of it. Oh, he does, and he knows just how to reach each one of us. I had no idea walking into this TV studio that day that I would actually have a seed planted in my heart. And that just shows you something. You know, chance encounters can make all the difference. You might come into contact with somebody where you plant a seed, and that seed will grow into fruition one day. Somebody else might water the seed. Somebody else might have the privilege of seeing that, that seed blossom into a flower. And, and the encouragement there is that when we witness to people, uh, let's all keep in mind that we're not in the business of conversion. That's God's job. We're called to be God's witnesses. And sometimes we just plant a seed. Other times we might water a seed. Still other times we might witness that, that, uh, that flower bloom. Mm-hmm. But don't get discouraged if everybody you witness to doesn't become a believer. They certainly don't with me. Uh, and, and, and that's not what we see with the disciples either. And so to me, that just kind of sets us free in terms of witnessing to people because it, re- it removes the burden of us being the converters. We're not the converters. We were never intended to be. God does that. But we are called to be faithful witnesses. And thank God for uh, Shirley Boone on that day. Amen. Let me ask you a question about what you do. And I want you to clarify it because we talk about Christian apologetics yeah. and you're an apologist and... We hear that and we think, does that mean he says, I'm sorry a lot? He apologizes? What is apologetics? Well, that's a good question. Uh, It comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means defense. And it has to do with defending Christianity against any and every attack. Uh, You know, there wouldn't have been a reformation if it weren't for Martin Martin Luther taking a stand for the truth, right? Right. Even in New Testament times, apologetics became an important thing. You know why? Because many false doctrines emerged. The Apostle Paul talked about a different gospel in Galatians 1.8. Talked about a different Jesus in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, mm-hmm. verse 14 as well. Uh, you know, there's uh, false Christs that Jesus warns about in Matthew 7 and Matthew 24. Uh, there's doctrines of demons that we read about. You know, if you look at 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4, uh, there's this indication that people are going to be falling away from the faith and and doctrines of demons emerging. And so even in biblical times, there was need to defend the truth. And they used apologetics. You know, the Apostle Paul would reason from the scriptures with the Jews and with the pagan philosophers. And by the way, if you don't know, that's where we got our title for our ministry, 
reasoning from the scriptures. You know, we didn't just make that up. Uh, we got that from the Apostle Paul. Uh, and a- as well, I look at uh, the objective approach that a number of the biblical writers took. Like, you remember with, uh, with Luke? Yes. You remember the first four verses in Luke's gospel? Right. Luke starts out and he says, you know, he's researched everything carefully. He's examined the various accounts that are out there. And he was writing to someone named Theophilus, a name that means lover of God. And so he's, Luke is writing and he says that he's doing all this research and compiling this account so that you may know with certainty the things that we have believed. You see, so that's part of what apologetics about is about. It's not just defending against attacks, but apologetics also serves to ground our faith. You see, and by grounding our faith, I'm talking about the fact that it helps us to learn why we believe what we believe. For example, you might think that Jesus is God, and you would be right. But today we had a nice session together where we talked about why Jesus is God. He has the names of God. He does the works of God. He's recognized as God. He's worshipped as God. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we see in the early church is the increased need for apologetics. I'm sure you've done a lot of study, for example, with Gnosticism. You know, those ancient Gnostics said that there was a guy by the name of Serenthus. And John knew Serenthus, the Apostle John. And Serenthus said that uh, Jesus was just a human and this cosmic Christ spirit came down upon him at the baptism and then later departed at the crucifixion. And meanwhile, this Christ spirit gave secret knowledge to the initiates, you know, the, the disciples. Well, of course, that's a bunch of baloney. So part of what John is writing about in his epistles is about defending the incarnation that Jesus didn't just, he wasn't just a human on, on whom this Christ spirit came, but rather in Jesus Christ. He was one person with a 100% divine nature and a 100% human nature. So John is defending against that. And then soon after that, you've got like the, uh, the Arians that developed. The Arians are the precursors of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They Arians said, not being European Arians, right, but the right. followers of Arius. For followers of Arius who said that Jesus was a created being, that he was a lesser deity than God the Father. And so we see that doctrine reflected in the Jehovah's Witnesses today, and the early apologists took a stand against that. Likewise, there's modalistic monarchianism, this idea that there's no trinity. Say that ten times really fast. I don't think I could. Modalistic monarchianism? Modalistic monarchianism. You learned a new phrase today. See, if you say that real fast three times, people might think you're speaking in tongues. (laughs) See? Now, I've never spoken in tongues, but I suppose if I said that three times real fast, I might fool you. That's right. I have to ask you a question because you you, you hit on a very important word that I want you to clarify for us. You talk about defense. A lot of people, I think, get the idea that apologetics is attacking people for what they believe. We're going on the attack. But you're saying it's not that. It's defending their attack. Is that right? That's right. Christianity is on the receiving end of attacks. And you've got to understand the motivation here. Uh, the, the attacks are not only natural, but they're also supernatural. What I'm talking about is, at least my personal belief, is that Satan is behind false religion that Satan has motivated the development of multiple false religions and that he is, in fact, a master marketer, that Satan has come up with a variety of false religions, each of which appeal to a different segment of our society. You see, for example, uh, do you like the idea that you could become a god and rule your own planet? Well, Mormonism is your ticket. Do you like the idea that you might be able to create your own reality? Well, we've got new age cults for you. Does the the idea of death bother you? How about a religious group that denies death? Well, Christian science is your ticket. 
You see, what Satan has done is he's developed all these false religions with the goal of drawing people away from the truth of Scripture and the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, apologetics steps in and defends the truth against these these various attacks. And really, this kind of brings up a beef that I have. Can I share this beef that I have? Uh, I believe that a lot of apologists today, not any apologists that are here at this conference, because I have full confidence in all of them, but I believe that a large percentage of apologists in our day have really missed the boat. Uh, I say that because apologetics has become primarily and almost exclusively about right answers, strong answers to use in defense of Christianity. Now, to be sure, strong answers are necessary. They're, They're critical to proper apologetics. But apologetics must begin, in my opinion, with the Christian who is completely committed to Jesus Christ, that is committed so much that Jesus shines through you, that people can see that you're different, that people notice something about you in the way that you treat them, and that the love of Jesus actually shines out to them. Look at it this way. If you have strong answers coming from a person who's arrogant, who talks down to you, I don't care whether they're on the radio or on in person, if they talk down to you and they're in your face, do those strong answers mean that much? No. Nope. Probably not. But if there's a person that is shining Jesus, that you can tell in that person that Jesus is the center of that person's life, that that person's life has been changed, that they're living for Jesus with all that is in them, and strong answers come from that person, would you listen to them? You probably would. And unfortunately, a large percentage of the apologists out there are not doing that today. So my exhortation, you know, I'm not trying to criticize, but I am trying to exhort. I'm trying to exhort people back to biblical apologetics. You remember 1 Peter 3.15, right? Yep. We need to always be Be ready ready. to give an answer to people, but we must do so with gentleness and respect. And where does gentleness and respect come from? Who does that sound like? Gentleness and respect. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Yep. So really, as we walk with Jesus and Jesus shines through us, it's going to be a natural thing to show gentleness and respect to people. And I have found in my own work of apologetics that whenever I have strong answers without that love, I don't make any progress. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll I'll just be vulnerable with you. Okay, I'm going to tell you the truth. I used to use the other style of apologetics. I used to win every argument and, and lose every soul. I'm not kidding. People would be on the doorstep. And I would literally fry him on the doorstep with correct doctrine. I now call that the flamethrower approach to evangelism. (laughs) They'd ring the doorbell and I'd go. (laughs) And I always won the (laughs) argument, but I never, ever made any progress towards them becoming a believer. But when I started to treat them with respect and to love them, to invite them in, offer them some tea, except if they're Mormons, they don't want caffeine, of course. Um, And you don't want to offer ham or anything like that to Muslims. I mean, there's some things to keep in mind. But if you treat them with respect and love and let Jesus shine through you, those barriers come down. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want to have happen. And I can tell you this. People are going to be a lot more apt to want to come back to your house and talk to you again if you treat them with gentleness and respect. I'll just clue you in on something. When you have a Mormon and Jehovah's Witness, for example, show up on your doorstep, did you know they fill out a form on you after they leave? That's right. They fill out a form on you. What does the form say? Well, the form is either write down your name if they have it, 
and then write down what was shared with them, uh-huh. and then write down what the response was and whether this would be a person for a good follow-up. Now, if you're all arrogant and in their face, they're going to mark on there, don't follow up. Okay, but what if you have the answers to some of the things they're sharing? Will they not also say, don't come back to this house? Well, not necessarily. If you have answers and you shower love upon them, there's a very good possibility that they'll come back. In fact, me and my wife, Carrie, we have met with the same Jehovah's Witnesses for up to uh, like a year and a half before the elders step in and say, that's the end of that. You know. But there's been others who have become Christians. And you should never cut it off. You should always make them feel like they can come back. And here's another thing to keep in mind. Um, very often when it's two by two with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness in particular, one is like the leader and the other is like the learner. Mm-hmm. Okay, One is more mature in the faith and the other is not mature. The way I like to word things is that either one are welcome to come back either as a group or individually if you'd like to talk to us more. You see, I want that new convert to feel free to come to me without this other person in case that would make a difference. Of course, they don't want that to happen, and I'm quite sure that in most cases the the more uh, mature uh, leader warns them against that. But I always want them to feel free to come back alone and in some cases, they have done that. Let me so. just sort of play the devil's advocate just a little bit on... I do see horns coming up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's probably not the best term to use as a pastor, is it? The devil's advocate. Because I am not his advocate. Um, let me take... Come a out on clean spirit. Hey. <laughs> All right. Um, Did you see those horns go right back down? They just... Yeah, it's pretty cool. What about the Christians who will say, well... Ron, that's great. You have made a living out of this. You've done this as a as a calling, as a ministry. But, but you know, that's I, I I don't know apologetics. Can I just let people believe what they believe? You know, should every Christian be an apologist? I, I think that they should. And let me tell you why. Uh, first of all, there's the scriptural command. It's not like we have an option on this. You know, uh, Jude three that says, "Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints." I hate to tell you this, folks, but that's not written to ministers or pastors. That's written to all Christians. And I can promise you one thing. The threat against the church today is so massive, it is so tidal wave-like, that there is no way we apologists, we professionals, will win the battle. There is no way. If the average Christian does not get involved, we have lost the battle. Now, let me just tell you a couple of facts. Uh, Did you know that there are religions growing faster than Christianity in the world? There are. And statistically speaking, we are very clearly losing the battle. And even within the Christian church, we've got Christians who are succumbing to falsehood. Did you know that today one of the biggest problems that we're facing within the Christian church is Christians being tainted by false religion? Did you know, for example, that today there are Christian Wiccans? Christian Wiccans. These they call are Christ- themselves Christians? Christian Wiccans. They, they call themselves Christian. What they say is, we are witches at heart. You know, we worship the mother goddess and the male-horned god. And I can talk about this later if we have time. But what they also say is that we seek meaning in life. And the way that we get meaning in life is to bring Jesus into the picture. You know, and so we follow Jesus, but we also follow the mother goddess and the male-horned god, which are the two main deities to Wiccans. There's also Christian psychics today. Uh, Christian psychics basically say they've got a gift of the Holy Spirit which enables them to contact the dead. 
You see, so my point to you is, by the way, there's also Christian paganism. And so we're seeing all of these little hybrid groups come up. Uh, it's syncretism. And you remember in the Old Testament what happened with the Israelites? You know, the Israelites would often get mixed in with some of the pagan cultures right. around them. And God would say, come out and be separate. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Well, you see, God doesn't like syncretism. God hates psychics. God, I mean, he doesn't hate the psychics. He loves the people, but he hates the false religion. And he knows that if you get involved in that stuff, it's going to just kill your spiritual life, you see. So we've got a major problem, not just in terms of the cults out there and the false religions and the atheists and all those other things, but even within the church itself, we face a major defection from the faith. We find major numbers of Christians that have fallen away from biblical doctrine and and have become biblically illiterate. Mm -hmm. And so part of apologetics, like I said earlier, is is to ground Christians in the faith and to strengthen their faith. Let me tell you something. Did you know that according to our best statistics, approximately 25% of all the people that join up with the cults out there come from a Bible-believing church? We're talking about a church like this, Bible-believing church. Why is that? Well, I think that one of the reasons for that is that a lot of Christians just haven't been educated in the Word of God. A lot of churches out there teach the Word of God, but they don't really open their Bibles outside of the sermon. You know, these Christians will open it up for the 15 or 20 minutes of the sermon. Then once the sermon is over, the Bible gets shut, and they don't look at the Bible again. Now, let me just tell you something. If you only spend 15 minutes a week studying the Bible, you are vulnerable to cultic deception. A large percentage of the people that join the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses come out of Bible-believing churches. And another 40% join out of the larger, the uh, liberal Christian denominations. That's a total of something like 65%. And so that spells disaster for the Christian church. So it's not just a matter of external threat. There's also the matter of an internal cancer that is growing. And that internal cancer has to be addressed. Let us not forget that the enemy of our souls is called the father of lies, and he seeks to deceive. And there's nothing that pleases him more than to take a Christian and deceive them so that they're no longer uh, exclusively the property of Christ. Ron, let me just take this in a slightly different direction. I want to just get really basic with you for a moment. Can you prove God exists? I mean, you you can't feel him, right? You can't feel him. You can't see him. Uh, People will ask that all the time. How do you know God even exists? Well, that's a good question. Um, let me just say that there are tan- intangible things that you can't touch. It kind of reminds me of the movie uh, Contact, which I'm sure you saw. It was a movie It was filmed uh, here in part. Uh, Jody Foster. Not at this church, but in the state, yes. Right. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the scenes in the movie portrays uh, the character played by Jodie Foster saying that she loved her father. And uh, the Matthew McConaughey figure says, well, prove it. How do you prove love? How do you, how do you prove that you love somebody? Mm-hmm. Give me the tangible evidence that you love somebody. Or what about loyalty? How do you prove loyalty to somebody? What's the concrete evidence that loyalty exists? What about uh, friendships? You know, sometimes there's no good reason to stand by your friend, but you do anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no tangible reason to do it, but you still do it. Uh, art. You know, how do you tell whether art is beautiful or ugly? I mean, aesthetic things are not things yeah, that that's are... subjective. It's that's just subjective, subjective, and there's there's sort of a non-tangibility Are you saying it's only it. subjective that we can know God or know No, I'm exists? not saying that. I'm just saying that there are some real things that you don't necessarily see tangibly. 
All of those things are real. Love is real. Faithfulness is real. Loyalty is real. All of those things are real, uh, and yet you, you don't actually see them with your physical eyes. Right. We do have certain limitations. We've got five senses, you see. But I believe that you can prove uh, that God exists, and there's a number of ways that you can do that. Uh, I think, for example, uh, Psalm 19 that says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. You know, uh, if I might get theological with you, Scripture um, seems to indicate that God gives us general revelation and specific revelation or special revelation. See, God is not the kind of God who creates us and then leaves us groping around in the dark trying to discover him. He is the aggressor in making himself known, and the way that he makes himself known is through both uh, uh, general revelation and special revelation. Now, when we're talking about general revelation, we're talking about stuff like uh, you know, seeing the existence of God uh, in the universe around us or perhaps God's writing of, this, of his law within our hearts. You see, that's general revelation. That's enough to let you know that God exists and that's enough to let you know that uh, if you don't you know, listen to that revelation, God is just in condemning you. That's what God says in the so scriptures. So an ordered universe is one of the proofs or evidences of a, of, a, of a supernatural. Well, that's right. I think you could go to, for example, the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. These are terms. You don't have to remember those terms per se, but just think of it this way. In the cosmological argument, it says that every, you know, it, everything that has a beginning has a cause. That's the foundational premise. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. See, that's the cosmological argument in a capsule. And what we can do is we can actually go to science uh, to prove some of those premises. For example, is it true that the universe had a beginning? I think it is true. We could look at, for example, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, The first law says that energy cannot change forms. I mean, it cannot be destroyed. It can only change forms. Mm Whereas the second law says that the amount of available energy is burning out. So what that means is, is, as you look at the sun, the sun is burning off millions of tons of its mass every day, just like every star in the universe. Every star is burning off millions of tons of mass every single day. Now, what does that imply? That implies that one day they're all going to burn out. That also implies that they had a beginning. Somebody got it started at some point. And if everything is burning out such that one day we'll, we will experience a heat death, that implies that the universe had a beginning. You see, so that's one way that you could, you could talk about it. Now, quite frankly, there's a lot of apologists today who use the Big Bang to make the same argument. Now, I don't know what your position is, Skip. Uh, are you old Earth or young Earth? I have read good books on both. I tended to be a young Earth. So are you kind of like um, Norman Geisler? Norman Geisler will sometimes say something like, well, I'm old Earth four days a week and young Earth three days a week. That's what he yeah, said. Yeah, I've heard uh, that. But I think he's, he's more young. He's really old, more old Earth, I think. Uh, and by the way, there's great Christians on both sides of this debate. Mm-hmm. I, I disagree with Christians who make this an issue of orthodoxy. We shouldn't do that, folks. Both sides believe in a creation. But uh, I'm a young Earther. I believe that when you look at the Genesis account, it, it looks like to me there are literal days. Yeah. You've got morning and evening, and you've got light and darkness, and you've got... Uh, numbers used with the Hebrew word for day. So I'm a young earther. But, but how do we deal with this, this big bang? You know, uh, a lot of the uh, scientists talk about how there was apparently a big bang and all these galaxies have been moving away from the earth 
at this phenomenal speed. And by backtracking, we can determine, according to them, that the universe is something like 13 to 15 billion years old. Now, I personally don't believe that it's that old. Like I said, I'm a young earther, but that's what some of the, uh, you know, some of the thinking is on the subject. Uh, that really assumes, in my opinion, uniformitarianism, the idea that uh, the universe has been expanding at a uniform speed for that entire time period like this at the same speed. Are you following me? There are some young earthers who believe that maybe in that first instant of creation, when the laws of physics didn't even exist yet, what if God in that first instant instantly expanded it to a very large part of the universe, like and then from that point, it's been expanding. You see, in that scenario, the, the earth would be younger and the universe would be younger. And he would do that, why? He wouldn't do that to give it the impression because he wouldn't want to deceive. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's God's reason. We know none of us were there. None of us were there to witness this. And my feeling is, is that uh, science is not my judge of the Bible, but rather I stick with the Bible. Now, this is not to impugn old earthers who have a solid commitment to Scripture because they believe that their view is uh, also uh, you know, faithfully adhering to what the Scriptures teach. And they will go to different verses which speak about the word day right. and interpret that as being an age. Right. And that's true to say that. The, the word can be used sure. in that way. Except it's just that evening and morning were the first That's day. right. My, my take on the Genesis account is that it's young earth. And so, you know, if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of staying faithful to what I believe Scripture teaches in Genesis okay. instead of going along with this 15-billion-year-old, you know, scenario. And if there is a viable scenario that explains it, perhaps expanding real rapidly at first and then expanding slowly beyond that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there. But here, I'll t I will tell you this. Uh, Thomas Kuhn was a scientist who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Anybody read that book? Nobody. Okay. Well, I read a lot of weird books. <laughs> and this book demonstrated beyond any doubt from a scientific perspective that there are multiple paradigm shifts that have taken place uh, year in and year out, century in and century out in the scientific community. And what used to be accepted scientifically is not is, is been overturned by some new scientific paradigm. And we have seen this happen over and over again. My only point being this, that regardless of what your position is on the Big Bang, you know, scientists 20, 30 years from now, they might have a completely different theory mm -hmm. on some of this. Yeah, science does change quite it a does, bit, it? It does change. And for that reason, I don't want to let science be my determiner as to what the Word of God says. So like I said, if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of interpreting Scripture literally. And I feel very comfortable with that, while at the same time, not dividing with my brothers and sisters who may disagree with me. Right. Part of science is the replicability of an event that can be observed time and time again, and none of us were there, and nor can you. No, and you can't. You can't replicate again. that in the you know in, in a laboratory. There's a lot of miracles that you can't replicate. Not only can you not replicate the original creation, but you can't replicate Christ's incarnation. You know, you can't replicate the resurrection. But you know, replication is not even a part of all of science. Uh, how are you going to replicate the ice age? You know, every scientist agrees that the ice age happened. But it's not something that's been replicated in a it's laboratory. It's happening in my refrigerator as we speak. Right now. Okay. Yeah. So, well, our ice maker has broken. Oh, so okay. we've experienced a paradigm shift in okay. terms of ice. Okay. So, so here, I, I want to, I I let's say we get past this hurdle of, okay, I believe there's a God. Here's a question for you. It's, it's often asked. 
Um, you have your truth, I have my truth. There's many religions, there's many belief systems. How can Christians hold to their truth as if they have the corner on the market and everybody else is wrong? Speak well, certainly there are other religions that have some truth. You know, for example, every other religion out there, or at least almost every other religion out there, has some version of the golden rule. You know, and so from an ethical perspective, we can look at some of the other religions and say, well, this is true, and that's true, and that's true. Okay. But you see, there's a big distinction between Christianity and the other religions. Christianity has generally sought to take bad men and make them better by ethics. Christianity, by contrast, seeks to take dead men and make them alive. Oh, that's good. See, we're, we don't just have an ethics problem. That's worth the price of admission, that statement right there. Well, the ushers, please come forward. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, the, the point is, is that we don't just have an ethics problem. We are dead spiritually. And because we are dead spiritually, we need external help. Dead people cannot help themselves, and therefore we need an external Savior. And that external Savior is Jesus Christ. Now, in terms of the issue of truth, it, you know, we're often accused of being arrogant and narrow-minded for saying these things. Yep. But let me just say this. When, when I talk to people, I try to help them to understand by being real loving and kind and asking my questions. But I help them to see that it's really not logical to hold to like this relativistic idea of truth. For example, you've got the skeptic out there. And the skeptic is skeptical about everything. The word skepticism comes from a word that means doubt. So they have a worldview of doubt. And so the point that I try to get a point a, a, a across to them is that they seem awful certain that their worldview of doubt is correct. They are absolutely certain that their worldview of uncertainty... It's contradictory right off the bat. It's contradictory. Same thing with the, the agnostics. The agnostics say, you know, um, we do not know reality. But that ultimately says we know enough about reality to know that we don't know reality. It's self-destruct. It's, self, it's a self-defeating statement. That's right. Or somebody might say to you, um, you know, you can't know truth. And you can say, well, how do you know that is true? Yeah, right? that's good. That's or if good. somebody might say, you have your truth and I have my truth. And I can say, well, is that statement just true for you and not me? See, or they might say that words, words do not have objective meaning. And you can say, do those words have objective meaning? Hmm. Do you follow me? Yes. What you're trying to do is to show them how nonsensical it really is to hold to that view. And then what I also try to do is to help them see that it's unlivable. It's unlivable. For example, if you're a moral relativist, you really don't have any right to complain about the problem of evil. You really don't. I mean, you have no absolute standard. You don't have a compass that points moral north and immoral south, if you know what I mean. Yep. And therefore, you really don't have anything to gripe about in terms of the problem of evil out there. Nor do you have any ultimate basis for giving praiseworthy statements or blameworthy statements to people. After all, there's no absolute standard that tells you what you should blame or what, what, is, what is praiseworthy. You see, it's not really a livable scenario. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after I point out that it's illogical and unlivable, you know, I always like to come back to the Bible. Our ministry is called Reasoning from the Scriptures. I believe the Scriptures are supernatural. I believe that God bears witness to His truth. So I help them to see that moral law comes from a moral lawgiver, that moral prescriptions must come from a moral prescriber. And the moral law that we have comes from a living God that holds us accountable. And guess what? You're going to die one day. And you better, you better have considered this stuff. And here's what I like to do. These people who are all into relativism, you know, they sound like they've made up their mind, but the tack I always use is this. 
Well, before you make up your mind for sure, consider this. And if they let you talk, the door's wide open. If they slam the door shut, well, there's nothing you can do about it. But I always say, you know, before you make up your mind for sure, consider the following facts. And that, that just kind of allows you to keep on talking. Yes. Ron, I have so many questions that what I'm going to do is, because we have to bring this to a close today, but um, I'm going to ask you different questions at all four of our services. And then we're going to archive them and have them available for anybody who wants them. But there's so many issues, and I know that you've studied and researched a lot of this. But here's what I want to close with. If there's a skeptic who has come, maybe they're at this service or they're watching online or by radio, um, they've come to church or they're tuning in and they're, we've got them this far. Speak to that skeptic. Now what? What's the next challenge and step for them? Well, you know, God only holds us responsible for the knowledge that we've been given. And I hope that by the conversation that we've had today, that it's at least raised the possibility in your mind that maybe there is something to all of this. It is my belief that there is a rational basis for believing in Christianity and that God himself has given us rationality in order to reason about it. Did you know that Scripture itself teaches that you and I were created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27? And part of being created in the image of God is having a rational nature. It's more than that. The, the image of God is much more than that, but it, it at least includes that. God himself created human language so that we could talk to each other and communicate. God says in Isaiah, come let us reason together. You see, we don't have to kiss our intellects goodbye in order to have faith in Jesus Christ, which is what this conference this weekend has been all about. So my encouragement to anybody who's listening today who may be a skeptic is this. There is a sound, logical, and evidential basis for what we as Christians believe. There is evidence for all of the major doctrines, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if you're bold enough, if you're bold enough to step forward, I can tell you this, I personally will be willing to dialogue via the Internet, by email, with anybody who contacts me. And my email, to prove it, I'll give you my email address. It's ronrhodes at earthlink.net. If you want to dialogue about this, you contact me. Of course, you can contact Skip, too. Skip's uh, cell phone number is... Oh, wait a minute. Should I not do that? <laughs> well, let me just follow up and say... Um to you, if you're here, you're a skeptic, or you're at our Santa Fe campus today, or you're hearing this on radio or whatever, um, if you'd like to come up even after this service, there's going to be, at both campuses, there's pastors up front that would love to talk to you. We have a prayer room. We have people that would love to pray with you, pray for you, just talk if that's all you want. But uh, don't just leave. Um, come and dialogue. The, the doubts, the questions that you have are good questions. But we want you to know there's good answers for them as well. Amen. Let's, uh, let's all stand and we'll pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this very invigorating approach today that we could have about truth, absolute truth in an age of uncertainty. Lord, those of us who have come to know Jesus, we know the feeling and the liberation that that comes with. And we're so grateful that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead to conquer the grave. And Father, it is our prayer that many others who are listening today would come to that same faith. And thank you for strengthening our faith. And thank you for Dr. Rhodes and his ministry, Reasoning from the Scriptures. We pray a special blessing upon him.
Um, he has spoken a lot this weekend, and we just pray that you would invigorate him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so it's kind of funny the way God has a sense of humor in all of this. Uh, it, it's especially a sense of humor when you consider who he calls into ministry. Yep. I'm talking about myself. I don't know what your background is. Well, I'm is, thinking but, especially you know, since the name of the song that we played was Voodoo, Voodoo Magic. Magic. That's right. You know, go you, figure it. You went from that to a Christian apologist. That's right. Expert. I mean, I, I didn't know that voodoo was wrong. I attended this, uh, this liberal church. And this liberal church had no concept of what was really right or wrong. It had no concept of what's occultic and what's not. I mean, everything's open game when you're in a liberal church. And so uh, when the record producer said, hey, there's a song called Voodoo Magic, I mean, we're just totally ignorant, and we go, okay, yeah, Voodoo Magic. Why don't we sound really gross on it? And you go, ow, Voodoo Magic in the night, kind of like you heard on the song. <laughs> and we were just goofing off, you know, and, and that, that song ended up on the charts, on the national charts. And so, you know, we were totally in ignorance. And after I became a believer, and I started to learn what the Bible has to say about a lot of this, I say, whoa. We were into some bad stuff there. And, uh, you know, of course, we repented of all of that. And uh, I guess we dug that up off the Internet. Huh? Yeah, we it's did. On the Internet somewhere. Hey, hey, Ron, you've written a lot of books about what Christians believe and, and why they should believe what they believe. How many books have you written? It's close to 60 now. Close yeah. to 60 books? Yeah, I, I saw a magazine that said somebody has locked Ron Rhodes into a, in a closet with a typewriter, which uh, is not true. But I just write every morning before I get on to other ministry business. I mean, they start very, very early. I take care of my writing first because that's when my brain cells are actually working. They actually stop working around 11, maybe 12. And so for the rest of the day, I've got to do stuff that doesn't require much brain work. I'd like your so, brain then because your brain not so, working is a lot better than mine. Uh, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. So, so here, here's a, you do apologetics. Yeah. You're an apologist. And when a lot of people hear that term, they think, does that mean you have to say you're sorry for everything you believe? Mm. What, what is apologetics? What does it mean and why is it important? Well, it's a good question. Uh, apologetics has to do with the defense of the Christian faith. And that's really what the Greek word means. It's apologia. It means defense. And you might wonder, well, why is a defense of Christianity necessary? Was it even necessary in Bible times? And uh, actually, the answer is yes. Back in Bible times, warnings started to surface about people who believed in a different gospel, Galatians 1.8, people who believed in a different Christ. You know, Jesus himself warned about that in Matthew 7 and Matthew 24. Uh, the Apostle Paul warned against a, a different Jesus in 2 Corinthians 11. And so because people started to develop these counterfeit ideas about key doctrines, mm -hmm. apologetics became necessary. And so, for example, the Apostle Paul would reason from the Scriptures with people. If you look at the book of Acts. By the way, I head up a ministry called Reasoning from the Scriptures. And that's where we got the name, from the Apostle Paul. And back during those days, there's other errors that started to develop. Uh, I'm sure that you've studied Gnosticism, for yes. example. Uh, you know, back in John's day, the Apostle John came into contact with a guy by the name of Serenthus. And Serenthus said that Jesus was just a human. And then, at some point, at his baptism, this cosmic Christ came down upon Jesus and lived in Jesus' body for three years. And during that three-year period, this cosmic Christ spoke to the initiates, the secret initiates, the disciples. Nobody else could hear their, their words of wisdom. You know, it was only the disciples. And that's the background of 1 John, isn't it? Well, it is, because in 1 John, John is writing about the fact that Jesus didn't have some cosmic Christ come upon him. Jesus is one person, and in the incarnation, Jesus took on an additional nature, a human nature. So now, Jesus was one person 
who is 100% God and 100% man. So that's apologetics. Yep. And so that's what I do. The only thing about today is, is we've got more threats than ever when you think about it. Now, that's yeah. an interesting distinction because you said threats and you talk yep. about a defense for the faith. Right, right. Uh, as Jude said, um, to put up a good fight for the faith, one translation says, or contend earnestly. Um, are you saying then that an apologist doesn't attack people? Because I think people think people like you attack yeah, other belief yeah. systems. Or are you defending their attack? Well, that's a good distinction. And, and the, the truth is, is that we're defending against other attacks. However, can I qualify that? I want to qualify that because I do think that some apologists get it wrong. I think there are some apologists who have a tendency to be a little bit arrogant today. You know, whether you're listening to them on the radio or you're talking to them in person, there are some apologists that seem to have like a spiritual chip on their shoulder, and they tend to talk down at people. And in that sense, it can come across as an attack. And I believe that the biblical apologist, it begins with the person who is so committed to Jesus Christ that Jesus shines through that person. Uh, that the love of Christ is evident to all. And people look at that person and they, they say, that person is different. I can tell that that person is really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And so the biblical apologist is that kind of person. And just look at it this way, if you would. If there was an arrogant apologist who tended to talk down to you and he had all kinds of strong answers for you, do you think you would listen to him? Probably not. But if a humble Christian was speaking to you, he was full of love, Jesus is shining through him, and he's giving you strong answers, wouldn't you listen to him? Probably. You see, that's a biblical apologist. And, of course, 1 Peter 3.15 talks about that, right? Yes, it does. We are to be ready to give a defense, but we're to do so with gentleness and respect. And so you're right. You know, uh, uh, apologetics is really a defense of Christianity against the attack of other people. But what we want to do is not make the mistake of coming across as an attack. Now, Ron, do you think that every Christian should be an apologist? I mean, that's what you do for uh, a calling, and you've spent an enormous amount of time studying it. We don't have the background you've had. So what about the average garden-variety believer like ourselves? Well, I think that God calls us all to be apologists. And it doesn't mean that you have to have the title apologist. You know, when you introduce yourself, Hi, I'm John the Apologist. You You don't have to do that. But you can still do the work of apologetics in your own circle of influence. You've got neighbors, people at work, people in the neighborhood and so forth. Chances are some of those people are lost and into false religion. And so in your sphere of influence, God calls you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I've got to tell you, folks, that verse wasn't written to pastors. You know, that wasn't written to, like, you know, skip-type people. It was written to all of us. All Christians are to be involved. And it doesn't mean you've got to go out and get a seminary degree. You know, if you know about Jesus and what he did for you at the cross, you're equipped. You're equipped to share the faith. You know, if you're thankful for the grace of God because you know you can't save yourself, but that Jesus died in your place, you are equipped to talk to somebody about Jesus. And here's something to keep in mind. If somebody says to you, you know, uh, uh, you know let's say they ask a question. You know, I don't know what question it would be. Let's say they ask a question of you and you don't know the answer to it. All you've got to do is say this. You know what? That's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. I'll tell you what. Let me do a little research, and the next time we talk, I'll have an answer for you. And then you can call Skip. His cell phone number. 
Do you want uh, me to give out your cell phone number? Uh, no? No? Okay. If you know it, go ahead. No. Well, I think I got my cell okay, I yeah, got my yeah, iPhone yeah, yeah. right See, here. So, there you go. Okay, so let, let, let me ask you this. Um, you even mentioned that when you were younger, you thought just doing good was enough. Yeah, yeah. Can, can a person be good without God? I used to think so. I mean, I, I, you know, and let me just qualify that. I think that, say, for example, an atheistic couple has a child. You can do benevolent things. I mean, you can give warmth to the child and you can feed the child and, uh, you know, do those kinds of things. And in that sense, there is some goodness. But here's the issue. Do you really have a ground upon which to stand that tells you what is really good versus what is really bad? It's a good point because Jesus said there's none good but God. Well, that's right. And see, the thing is, what's good for one person, relatively speaking, is not good for another person. You know, an extreme example, for example, would be uh, Hitler. What was good for Hitler was very bad for the Jewish people. I'm sure you would agree with me on that. And so people can have relativistic ideas about what is good. And one person's good could be another person's evil. And so that's why we have to be very careful in talking about this. And here's what I think. You know, let's just pretend, for example, you're, uh, you're out in a boat. Anybody like to go fishing here? Anybody? Okay, well, I like to do it on occasion. But let's just say that you're out in the middle of a, of a lake somewhere, a big lake, and it's, it's at nighttime. Not that you'd really be out there at night, but let's say that it's nighttime. And there's a lot of cloud cover, so you can't see the stars or the moon, and you don't have a compass with you, and you don't have your iPhone with you, okay? You don't know which way is north. And you might want to go home, and you can't see any lights on land or anything like that. How do you know which way is north? How do you know which way is north? You might be going what you think is north, but you're actually going west. Now apply that to morality. Unless we have an absolute compass that points absolute moral north as well as absolute immoral south, unless we have a compass like that that tells us what is right and wrong, we don't have an ultimate understanding or ground of what's good. Yeah, we're shooting in the dark. And so that's the problem when people talk about, you know, trying to be good or bad. If you leave God out of the picture, you really can't define what is good or bad because God himself is our ultimate barometer for what is good and what is evil. And so, like, just take Hitler as an example. Uh, I don't care where you live, whether you live in Germany or elsewhere, based upon the absolute barometer of truth, which is God, we can know for a certainty without any shadow of a doubt that what Hitler did was south. It was immoral south, absolutely. You see, and, and we know that for sure because God reveals it. But if you leave God out of the equation, we can't really say what is ultimately good, what is ultimately bad. That's kind of philosophical, isn't it? But a little bit of philosophy is good. But very helpful. Ron, how many atheists are there in our country? What's the percentage, would you say? Well, you know, you can't just talk about our country uh, because it's a worldwide movement. The, the figure has been growing as a result of the new atheists out there. Yeah, I want to talk about the new atheists, guys like Dawkins and Hitchens. They look at people like us as those involved in organized ignorance. You know, we, we have yeah, our little systems, yeah. and, and they're, they're on the move. Um, these guys are like evangelistic in their atheism. So how should Christians respond to them? Well, that's a good question. I think there's a number of things that we can say. And, you know, just in our country alone, the percentage is growing. I mean, it used to be on the low side, you Mm -hmm. know, 5%. But it's been growing every single year. But in other countries, I mean, it's 60% or more. I mean, so on on a global basis, these guys are making a lot of noise. So it's a growing movement. It is a growing movement. 
And the thing of it is, they're shouting so loud, I think Christians have a tendency to kind of back down and be quiet about it. You know, they become secret agent Christians who've never blown their cover. And I think that Christians shouldn't be that way. In fact, as I pointed out at the conference, I think a lot of Christians have a disease uh, known by its Latin term, non rockabotus. You see? <laughs> Don't and rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. It's a song. You should know it. Don't we, rock we, the boat, baby. Well, we, we need to rock the boat for Jesus today. Would you agree with me on that? Yes. I think we do. And uh, what I like to do is, you know, very often when I'm talking with somebody that disagrees with me, and I mentioned this uh, last night, I, I often say something like, well, before you make your final decision, you know, they've already told me they're an atheist. They don't believe in God. Before you make your final decision, consider a few things. And that's when I launch into a variety of things that I think might help them to rethink their position. You know, for example, one thing you can do is to talk about how um, the, the atheist really can't say from his own pool of experience that there's no God because he's limited in where he's been and he's limited in his knowledge. And one way you can illustrate that, Skip, is to ask the atheist, uh, have you ever been to the Library of Congress? Uh, did you know that there's 70 million books in the Library of Congress? And then you can ask him, uh, what percent of the collective knowledge in the Library of Congress would you say that you have? And he would say, well, a, a microscopic part of, of 1%. And so then you can ask him, you know, is it possible that God may exist in the 99.9% of knowledge that you're not even aware of? Is that a possibility? And all I want to do at this point is to get him to admit that it's a possibility. I'm not asking for a conversion. Mm. I'm, just, I'm just helping him to think along at this point. And once he comes across and indicates, well, I suppose it's possible, then you can make some other points. Uh, for example, uh, very often atheists today will say that they don't believe in God because they don't see any evidence for it. They will say something like, I only believe in what I can see with my own eyes. I only believe with what, you know, what I can hear with my own ears. Or if you want to state it philosophically, they say, I only believe in what can be empirically observed. The problem with that is that principle itself cannot be verified by empirical verification. <laughs> yeah, you say, do you follow me? The principle itself self-destructs. It doesn't really work. And so what you want to do is to help him think through logically his position. Now, these guys will have objections. You know, for example, some of these people will say to you, well, if there's a God, why are there so many atheists? So I like to answer, well... If there is no God, why are there so many theists? I mean, that kind of balances out things, doesn't it? It's the or, same logic. Or he might, he, might say, he, you know, he might say that Christians invent God. That's mm -hmm. a common comeback. Mm -hmm. And what I like to say is, well, think about that for a moment. Why would I, as a Christian, invent a God that makes an incredible number of moral demands on my life? Why would I invent a God that says, I'm going to go to hell... If I don't believe in Jesus, why, do, why would I invent a God that you know, makes, has not only 10 commandments, but a total of 613 prohibitions and commandments upon my life? Why would I do something like that? I mean, it's not the kind of thing that people would just sit down and want to invent. If a human was going to invent a God, wouldn't they invent a God that would give them anything they wanted and that would enable people to live in any way they wanted, including their morals? Mm -hmm. And people could just engage in whatever immoral activity they wanted to do. Good point. And so to me, what you want to do is to point by point deal with the objections that he has. And that kind of brings me to a very important point because 
Atheists often have different motivations for being atheists. So one of the first things I want to do is to find out what his motivation is. You know, what drives you? Uh, Did you used to attend church and you got burned out on it? Is it the problem of evil that has, you know, turned you against God? Were That's a you, big one. Yeah, it, it is a, a big one. one. And maybe later we can talk about that. But you know, the fact is, is that all atheists have something that's driven them to that position. And what you want to do is to talk to them enough to find out where they're coming from so that you can then address uh, the particular objections they have. And see, the point that I'm trying to make is it's not just a matter of making a positive presentation of Christianity. They've got barriers to faith. And because they have barriers to faith, you're going to want to address those barriers. And if they ask you about a barrier you can't answer, well, it's the same thing I told you before. You know, I'm not sure what the answer is, but let me research that. And, and we'll talk. We'll talk about it next time. And so you can always get that information, for example, from my ministry, Reasoning from the Scriptures. We're one of those ministries that actually does answer our email. And, uh, you know, our whole goal is to help Christians like you be able to provide answers. And so, you know, that's why we exist. Uh, another another objection, and, and you can stop me if I start preaching. Uh, a lot of times atheists will say that if God really did exist, he'd throw some miracles out there that we could all see all the time. Okay. You know, for example, Carl Sagan, you remember what he said? Carl Sagan said that God ought to throw a big golden cross up in the sky, that it just stays there, a big golden cross. And my point is this. That's not God's way. That's not God's method. You see, one of the things that God wants to do is to sift God's char- you know, people's character. Now, look at it this way. Uh, Even employees act good when the boss is walking by, right? Even criminals act good when a cop is driving by. But what God is doing... Why did you look at me when you said that? No, go ahead. Sorry. Do you want me to say it publicly? (laughs) I can say it publicly. No, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, Well, I mean, you asked the question. Right. And so my, my point is simply this. God is sifting our character, and one of the ways he does that is that he does watch from a distance. How will humans act? Based upon the revelation that I have given them in my word, how will they respond to that? What, what will they demonstrate their character to be over a span of time? And God, that, God does that with each one of us. I, we have a question that came uh, online um, speaking about belief systems. Uh, this is from Karen, who uh, asked this question. Witnessing to New Agers. Yeah. Uh, I have a niece, she writes, who believes that we can choose what life we're born into. Yes. Well, the idea there, and there's different takes on this, but generally um, um, uh, New Agers are reincarnationists. And New Agers will typically say that before you reincarnate, you ask one of your friends or somebody that's in the afterlife with you to be your higher self or your spirit guide while you incarnate again on earth. And they also talk about a chart, a life chart that you develop. And your life chart basically details what the lessons that you want to learn during this next incarnation that you're going to go through. And so uh, you choose your parents You choose your job. You choose the neighborhood you're going to live in. Really? You choose some of the difficulties that you're going to experience and some of the tragedies that you're going to encounter. Nobody signs up for those. Well, they think they do. They think they sign up for them in the pre, you know, in this pre-existence, you know, this 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 life before they come uh, back to Earth, you know, in between reincarnations. And if you get off track, what New Agers say is that you can consult a psychic. You see, they say that the psychic can actually get in touch with your life chart 
and, and they can determine where you're supposed to be and, and then tell you, you know, okay, you've gotten off track here. What you need to do is such and so, and you'll be back on track. So to me, one of the ways of addressing or answering a new ager there is to deal with the foundational issue of reincarnation. And there's a number of ways that you can do that. You know, of course, you can take them to Scripture, which tells us in the book of Hebrews that we live once and then we die once. I mean, there's no, there's no second life. That's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, uh, now is the day of salvation. It's, it's in the present. And many New Agers will listen to Scripture, but some, you could p- pick up a Bible, they, they may not believe Well, in the you know, it can be kind of frustrating talking to a New Ager because they're very mystically driven. Yeah. And it's kind of like trying to tape jello to the wall. You know, it just doesn't work very good. But, you know, I'm of the opinion that evidence still works when you're talking with people. I don't care whether you're a New Ager or a Christian. Almost everybody had an opinion on O.J. Simpson that I talked to. Almost everybody had an opinion on it. I think that people have a tendency to be selective relativists on a lot of issues. You know, they might be relativists on some things like New Agers are, but they get objective real quick when they're talking about their banker. You know, how much money do I have? You know, what kind of investment rate can I get? Or they're talking to a doctor. I want to know what drug's going to heal me. Absolute truth becomes very important. That's right. And then from a logical perspective, there are some points that you can make in regard to uh, reincarnation. Uh, One point is this. Reincarnation is designed so that every life that you live, you're supposed to get better. You get born again and again and again and again and again. And each life, as you go through these life charts that you design, you're supposed to become increasingly better. So here's the question. Is the human race getting better? Over thousands of years that humanity has been here, is humanity getting better? Or does it seem like we're getting worse? Also, if the number of souls out there is constant, if the same number of of souls remains constant and they keep on reincarnating, why is it that we're witnessing a population explosion? See, Mm. you know, why is it that we've now got 7 billion when a long time ago we didn't even have 1 billion? Where did the extra ones come from? Where did all these new souls come from? You see, so practically speaking, it doesn't work. And furthermore, I've got to tell you that the whole law of karma thing is just outrageous when you think about it. Because according to reincarnationists, there's this impersonal law of karma that brings about justice. If, if somebody in your family gets cancer, allegedly that's the law of karma bringing that into their life as a result of taking care of some issue that they did in a previous life. In other words, they've built up bad karma. If you do good things in this life, you build up good karma, which means you'll be born in a better state in the next life. If you do bad things in this life, you build up you know, bad karma. If you do bad things, you get bad karma, which means you get cancer or something bad happens. Maybe you'll be reborn as a, you know, a roach or something. Uh, I mean, they talk about that kind of stuff. And, and to me, that is morally outrageous. And the point that I'm making is this. You know, I read an article about some, some Shiite Muslims who tore, tore open the womb of an Armenian woman and ripped the fetus from her womb. This was this is oh reported my. in the newspaper. <clears throat> You're going to tell me that this is karma? bringing about healing i mean where is there room for moral outrage in this and uh you know if i might also just add one other point skip um new agers typically say that you know ethics is is explained in terms of us creating our own reality by the power of our mind this is uh, rooted in the metaphysical cults and what they mean by that is that if you want a fat wallet i mean you can just use the power of your mind to make money grow 
And if you've got sickness like cancer, it's because you've created it in your mind. Well, it sounds, I know Christian churches that teach well, they do. the same line. They do. In fact, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And they get it from the same place. It's from the metaphysical cults. But the point that I'm driving at is that ethically it doesn't work. You see, what, what that ultimately means is that the thousands of people in the Twin Towers collectively brought about their own tragedy. In other words, you cannot blame those terrorists on the plane because it was the people in those towers that used the power of negative thinking to draw that judgment upon themselves. And likewise, you cannot blame Hitler for killing six million Jews because the Jews collectively, as a result of the power of their negative thoughts, brought that judgment upon themselves. So my point to you is, is that every angle that you look at, uh, there are moral insufficiencies in the New Age worldview, whether it's reincarnation or this idea of creating your own reality. Right. That's probably a, a TMI, you know, too much information. No, but, no, it's not. But, uh, it's very helpful. <laughs> but uh, in, in closing, Ron, um, speak to the church today. Speak to us who um, deal with a variety of people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. You mentioned yesterday in one of your talks that we need a baptism of boldness. Yes, How yes. do Explain that briefly, and then how do we get that? Well, what I was talking about is the fact that too many Christians today are cowering back in fear because of all the false religions that are out there, and especially some of the, the atheists out there that are shouting at us. We need a baptism of boldness. We, we need Christians to get off the fence. You know what I mean by that? I mean, you need to get off this fence where people, maybe they're not sure that you're a Christian. Maybe you feel more comfortable with your neighbors and friends not knowing that you're a Christian. What I believe we need today are Christians who are bold enough to stand against the cold, harsh wind of political correctness and tell the truth in the name of Jesus. We have got to do it. We will not win this world to Christ if all the Christians are cowering back in fear. Amen. And in my opinion, uh, there's, there's two critical things. Number one, there's dependence upon the Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Acts, I want you to pay special attention to, to the disciples who got filled with the Spirit. See, they got filled with the Spirit not just because they needed empowerment, but to enable them to boldly speak without fear. It is the Holy Spirit working in our lives that enables us to do that. And a second critically important thing is John 15, being plugged into the vine. Hmm. Jesus is divine. You are de-branch, if you might put it that way. And you got to keep, keep plugged into the branch. And I get it. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> took me a while. Uh, it's early, isn't it? It is in, early. In the early service, things are a little bit slow, but that's okay. Uh, the point being that if you're plugged into Jesus, being a bold witness is a natural result. You see, so that's the kind of Christian that we need. We don't have to muster up the power for ourselves to do this. Our first thing that we ought to do every morning is to focus on Jesus and plug into the vine. And keep that vine going because we draw our strength and our sustenance and our power from him. And as you draw your power from him, you're going to be a witness to others. Abide in me and you will bear forth much fruit. Absolutely. Ron, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It's um, been a pleasure. Just so you, yeah, please. Thank you. Uh, we have a question that we're going to have to save for, for next time um, about people who believe in Wiccan witchcraft. Oh, yeah, sure. And uh, this is what I'm doing. Uh, last night and all three services a day, so four services, I'm going to ask Ron only a couple of common questions. 
that will be used in all the services, but the rest are going to be fresh. I have, we have so many questions we want to get through that each service is basically different. We're going to put them all online if you want to go back and, uh, and refer to them. And maybe next service, uh, you're, you may be out and about or catch it online and you want to uh, write a question in, you're free to do that. But let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have men and women that you've raised up to give good information and resources to the body of Christ. I thank you for Dr. Rhodes and the ministry over the years with the early days of Christian Research Institute and Dr. Walter Martin, and now his ministry, Reasoning with the Scriptures, and um, just where he's been and and what he has contributed to the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that we um, we would bone up on the resources provided and the answers that are needed, and that with boldness filled with your spirit and also with compassion and love for the lost and for the misguided and misdirected and misinformed to share who Jesus is and what he can do to change a life, whether it's for a Hollywood singer to become an apologist or it's uh, somebody who works in an office or a professional. Lord, you can change any life and we're grateful that you've changed our lives. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, you speak about apologetics. Yeah. It's a word we've heard before, but it sort of sounds like we're supposed to apologize for what we believe. Is that what it means? No. Uh, a lot of people think that. But really what apologetics is, is it's defending the faith. And that's what the Greek word apologia means. It means to defend the faith. And even in Bible times, the disciples and the apostles had to defend the faith. And you might wonder why. Well, for example, uh, the apostle Paul in Galatians 1.8 warns about people who believe a different gospel. Or what about in Matthew 7 and Matthew, what is it, 24, where Jesus warns about counterfeit Christs and counterfeit apostles. And uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 warns about a different Jesus. You see, if you believe in a different Jesus that preaches a different gospel, you've got a counterfeit salvation. What do you mean a different Jesus? We only know there's one. Well, we know that there's one, but say, for example, the church that I grew up in. They had a different Jesus. Their Jesus was a good man who was not the Son of God, who was not God incarnate, but rather was a moral man who came to show us what a life of self-sacrifice should look like, that it was never God's intention for Jesus to die on the cross. So they made up a Jesus that's not the historical Jesus of the New Testament. That's right. It was a Jesus that uh, had the same name, but was identified to be something entirely different. And of course, the cults do the same thing. They use the same words that we do, but they redefine Jesus in a variety of different ways. And so, you know, God doesn't want people to be deceived. That's why there's so many warnings about false doctrine in the Bible. And that's why apologetics is necessary. God loves each person too much to stand idly by without taking action through his people standing against false doctrine because God knows that false doctrine is injurious. But, uh, Ron, somebody would say, why do you have to take pot shots at other belief systems? Can't you just leave well enough alone? You believe what you believe. Why should you go on the attack? Well, really, it's the opposite. Uh, The other groups have gone on the attack against Christianity. And Christians respond, uh, ideally in a loving way, uh, to the different threats that are out there, whether it's an atheist or a cultist or a different religion. And I have to sort of qualify my statement because I do have to admit, uh, Skip, that there are some apologists that come across like they're in attack mode. And you mentioned early on in your ministry you were kind of like that. 
Well, I was. In fact, uh, after I had become an apologist, uh, you know, there would be uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons that would ring the doorbell. And uh, I used to uh, literally roast them theologically, if I could put it that way. I would win every single argument, but I never won the soul. I now refer to that as the flamethrower method of apologetics. You, you know, they, they ring the doorbell, and then I uh, open the door and I go, and, uh, you know, like I said, I won every argument, but I never won anybody to Christ, and, and there was no conversion. And so I changed my method, and I came to see something very, very important. And that is that a biblical apologist is not just somebody who has answers about Christianity. It goes far beyond that. A biblical apologist must begin with the man or the woman who is so committed to Jesus Christ that Jesus shines through you. People can see Jesus in you. People can see that there's something different in you, something that's appealing, kind of like I saw in Shirley Boone. I saw that something was different. There was a vital union between her and Jesus. Now, a strong answer coming from that person, that's a person I want to listen to. Now, just think about it in your own shoes. What if there was some arrogant person who's always speaking down at you and they gave you some strong answers about Christianity? Would that be the kind of person you'd really want to listen to? Probably not. But if there was a godly person that literally shines Jesus and you can tell that they're just completely committed to Jesus Christ and then they provide strong answers, that's the kind of person I would listen to and I think that you would listen to too. So once I understood this pivotal truth, that's when I started to have results. And Skip, I can tell you something. And this is not in any way uh, Ron Rhodes. This is the Lord Jesus. Uh, we, we have witnessed virtually thousands of conversions uh, through our ministry to, to the kingdom of the cults. Hmm. I think that's one of the reasons Satan hates us so much. You know, the, 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 the fact is, is that people are leaving the kingdom of darkness and going into the kingdom of light. And so I would encourage you... Uh, you know, apologetics is not just about theology. It's not just about strong answers. You know, your, your first most important business is to connect strongly with Jesus. You know, it's like I said in the previous service. He is debranched and you are... No, he is divine and you are debranched. There's a vital union there. And we've got to stay connected to Jesus and let Jesus shine through you. And when you do that, you see results. Ron, in the previous... Uh services last night and this morning we talked about atheism we talked a little bit about the new age because there was a text question that came in online we talked about the proof of god we talked about absolute truth i want to talk a little bit about another side of spirituality and that is the darker side yes there's a lot of people that are spiritual these days Um, there's an occultism in fact that is growing a psychic phenomenon that is growing an interest vampires movies we'll talk about in a moment but it's on the rise. And we had a question that was texted in in the previous service. I would say they could text it again, but it looks like our monitors are dead up here. But it was about witchcraft. and Come out, unclean spirit. Yeah, that'd be nice. No, it's not working. Speaking of unclean spirits, uh, (laughs) it was a text question about Wicca. I don't know exactly what the question was, but it was about witchcraft. And and there seems to be this attraction, especially young people have. Maybe it's for power or for control or meaning. Why the sudden interest, and what's that all about? Well, it, it well, is it amazing. Is. It was put up on that screen. Could you throw that up again so I can see it? It says, how do you witness to a Wiccan who thinks Christianity and Wicca are the same? There you go. Okay, well, th- th- that, that involves a little backdrop here. Um, Wicca is actually a pagan religion 
completely unlike Wicca, but one of the things that's happened in recent years is the development of what's called Christian Wicca. Now, first let me tell you what Wicca is, and then, then the answer will make sense. Okay. Wicca is witchcraft. And Wicca basically has different views on all the doctrines than we as Christians have. For example, you and I believe that there's one God and that, that God has a divine son named Jesus. But what the Wiccan will say is that their primary deity is the mother goddess, and then the secondary deity is the, the, uh, the male horn god. It's basically the consort of the female deity. So they worship two primary deities. Uh, in terms of Jesus, they've got different views. Some say that Jesus himself was a witch. And by the way, witches are not just female. They're also male. So some witches say that, that Jesus was a witch and he had a coven of disciples. Others say that Jesus was a, um, a member of a patriarchal religion that worships the Father, that has all male apostles, with all male elders in the church. And they don't like that, Jesus. So they've got different views of Jesus. In terms of sin, we don't have moral sin. Really, the issue is for the Wiccan is whether you're in touch with nature. Salvation is getting in touch with nature. Here's why. Wiccans believe that all of nature is alive with spirits. They call that animism. Mm -hmm. I don't know if some of you might have seen that movie Avatar, but if you did, that movie portrayed the plants and the trees and all these things out there in the forest as having spirits. That's what Wiccans believe. So they want to be in tune with that nature. They're very relativistic. One of their primary creeds is tolerance, that you must tolerate the belief of any other Wiccan and that the worst thing you can do is to infringe upon their reality. So they're, they're, you know, they say, you know, you've got to be tolerant. They do have an ethical creed called the Wiccan Creed, which basically says, do whatever you want so long as it doesn't harm anybody. Okay. Now, why are teens gravitating towards this? I don't know if you know this, but this is one of the fastest growing religions among teens today. Reason why is, I think, first of all, personal empowerment. Think about it. Teenagers go to school and they're under the authority of the teachers. They go home, they're under the authority of their parents. They have part-time jobs, they're under the authority of their boss. It seems like wherever they go, somebody's on top of them. Teenagers believe that Wicca empowers them. You see, you can engage in mixing potions and casting spells, kind of like on the Harry Potter movies. And by doing that, uh, for example, if you, if you like somebody at school, you can mix up a romance potion and cast a spell. Or if uh, some guy gangs up on you, you can mix up a potion to get even with that guy. Incidentally, I was involved in some of that paranormal activity oh, really? before I became a Christian, astral projection, spirit writing. The potion thing I didn't do, and the romance thing definitely wasn't a, a part of that. But uh, nonetheless, um, yeah, it was for me, it, it gave me a sense of authority and power. And it also, I suspect, gave you a sense of belonging, did it not? True. Uh, I say that because very often teens find it very hard to penetrate cliques within the Christian church. Even my kids found that to be true. In fact, uh, we went to one large church in uh, Frisco, Texas, and the, the pastor's fantastic. You know, this is Chuck Swindoll's church. He lives just down the street from us. And his church is fantastic. But the youth group is close to 1,000 people. I mean, it is huge. And it is so huge that when our kids visited, they didn't get noticed by anybody. And it was very hard for them. And so we joined a really small church where they got noticed immediately. Okay, now, a lot of kids have problems breaking in and having new relationships in churches. 
By contrast, in Wicca, you feel like you're immediately a part of a family when you join a coven. You're immediately drawn into people who are like-minded and care about you. And it's, it's very much like a surrogate family, mm-hmm. which for teenagers, many of which spend very little quality time with mom and dad, uh, that's very appealing. Now, here's something I've got to tell you. This is a warning to all of us. When you consult what the Wiccans teach in their books, as well as all of the online sites on the Internet and the Internet courses you can take, the teenagers sign up for, they always warn teenagers not to tell their parents. No telling how many teenagers are actually involved in Wicca that nobody knows and their parents don't even know it. Secrecy is one of the things that, that, that they're engaged in. And so this is a warning to each of us because it, it has penetrated the Christian church. Today there are Christian Wiccans. And the reasoning is this. These are people who believe in Wicca and they, they worship the mother goddess and the male horn god mm-hmm. and mix potions and they cast spells and they do all of that. But they also say that to enhance meaning in life, they want to bring Jesus into the picture. And by bringing Jesus into the picture, they can have the abundant life while at the same time having this sense of oneness with all of your brothers and sisters in Wicca and have empowerment by engaging in these spells and so forth. Now, here's how you answer that. This is, here's, here's the kind of stuff to keep in mind. You remember in the Old Testament what happened to the Israelites as they traveled around and some of their neighbors were into some of these pagan religions? Uh, Israel got tainted. Yep. And some of those pagan elements actually penetrated Israel. The syncretistic religious approach that the Israelites got involved in. They did, and they even intermarried with some of these pagan peoples. And and God told them, you need to come out and be separate. You need to leave all of that because that's going to contaminate you. Well, the same thing is true with Wicca. You cannot have one foot in Christianity and one foot in Wicca. You simply can't. The Bible, in no uncertain terms, condemns Wicca. Witchcraft. I mean, it's the same thing. Witchcraft and Wicca are the same thing. And so it's impossible to be a Christian Wiccan. Now, here's something I've got to warn you about. Wiccans will often acknowledge that the Bible condemns witchcraft. But can you guess what they say? They say that the Bible has been tampered with by Christians. Christians stuck those verses in there against witchcraft. So it's not really in the original word of God, but rather Christians have added that stuff in. So part of your dealing with a Wiccan may involve defending the Bible as the infallible, inerrant word of God that has been reliably transmitted up to the the present day. And, of course, that's the beauty of the conference we had this weekend because we talked a lot about that kind of stuff. Um, Did you have a question before I move on? Is this the same reason that movies like Paranormal... Activity now the third one has come out or oh, the Twilight series has come out and you know the paranormal movie is it's it's like broken all the records and it's just packed theaters it's about two sisters who befriend an entity in their home yeah and so why that why that interest that almost voyeuristic look into that part of the supernatural well I'm curious how many people here have seen that movie they won't admit to it we, we won't admit to it right in okay, a public place have you seen it there's okay, one. Okay, let's write his What's name, your name down. No, I'm just All right. <laughs> All right, here we go. I think there's movies that people will see just to know what's going on out there. Maybe their kids are interested or they want to see what it's about. But Well, the, the, this is I'll tell you why there's such a big market for these kind of movies. Did you know that 
in America, in the United States today, 38% of Americans believe that ghosts can come back and visit us. 38%. You know how many people are in the U.S.? 300 million. Well, there's whole shows on this on television. Oh, that's right. Ghosts. In fact, uh, 14 of the pilots for the last season of TV shows were on the paranormal. And we're not just talking about ABC and NBC and those kind of you know major networks. We're also talking about oh, like the uh, um, um, uh, the Travel Network, the Biography Channel. I mean, channels that you wouldn't expect this stuff to come from. So they're all getting in on the paranormal because there's such a big market for it. And as well, close to 100 million Americans believe that we can actually engage in contact. Now, here's something that really surprised me. Uh, I discovered through my research that university studies have been done, and they've discovered that with each year of education in college, you are more apt to believe in psychic phenomena. College freshmen, about 23% of college freshmen, believe in the paranormal. By the time they're seniors, it's 31%. Those who go on to do graduate studies, it's 34%. Now, go figure that. Well, especially since you're dealing with an advanced education. Yeah. Um, it's not an objective reality, the experience they're into. They probably at the same time would criticize Christianity. That's exactly right. In so, fact, what's going on is that they're being infiltrated and, and inundated, really, with the philosophy of naturalism, which says that nature explains everything. And then uh, they're very much into subjectivism and mystical experiences, and they're very open to uh, you know, uh, psychic phenomena. Now, part and parcel of this is the fact that we're witnessing the aging of America today. In fact, um, the statistics indicate that by this time tomorrow, uh, a quarter of a million people will die. And in one hour, uh, 11,000 people die. So in the brief time that we're chatting today, 8,000 people will die on Earth. And you've got to understand what that's like. You know, we live in this little bubble. I live in Frisco, Texas. You live in Albuquerque. And from our perspective, we don't see all these people dying but if you can imagine just looking down on planet Earth like God can, there are souls literally flying out of bodies. I mean, a quarter of a million every day. A lot of people are dying. That means there's a huge market of people out there who are seeking for information about what, what lies on the other side. And I've got some alarming news for you. According to the latest polls, the death rate is 100%. <laughs> That's right. One out of one. One, one out of one. That's right. And so... It's a very important fact to keep in mind. Here's something that, uh, that I want to tell you about. In ghost theology, what they actually believe is that when a person dies, their spirit departs from the body, and at that point they must make a choice. And the choice is this. Do I go through the tunnel into the great light? Hey, we've got a great light right up here. You go into the great light, and once you go into the great light, you are said to be on the other side. Some spirits choose not to do that, according to them. These spirits stay on earth in haunted houses and so forth. And only those spirits are called ghosts. And the psychics claim to be able to get in contact with them. And they will tell you that the easiest people to contact among the dead are the freshly dead. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like, like Princess Bride. Yeah, it does. He's only mostly dead. Yeah. <laughs> but it's only the freshly dead that you can contact easily. Here's why. What is fresh? First week, two weeks, month? Yeah, something in that general time frame. What they say is that once you enter into the other side, which is roughly equated to heaven, it's also called the astral plane, but they're said to be like multiple levels of heaven, and you continue to evolve as a spirit. So each new level that you move up in heaven, it gets harder to contact by the psychic. And so people who are freshly dead, they're on the first level, so that's easier to contact. And if they've remained on earth as a ghost, that's the easiest to contact. 
I've got to tell you, I've got to stop right here and tell you that there's not really any dead humans on earth roaming around in spirits. I, I, I hate, to, hate to burst your bubble on this, but it's just not true. Christians, as soon as they die, their spirit departs the body as easy as a, a hand slips out of a glove and goes straight into the presence of Jesus. It's like Paul said in Philippians 1, 21 to 23. Paul desired to depart and be with Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord in heaven. You're not still on earth. Likewise, the wicked, those who have not trusted in Christ, are in a place of holding, a place of punishment where they await the future judgment. Uh, Luke 16, 19 to 31. Remember the, the rich man and Lazarus? Remember what Lazarus wanted to do or what the rich man wanted to do? He wanted to come back and warn his brothers. Was he allowed to do it? No. Contact was forbidden, you see. The point being that biblically there are no human spirits, you know, people who have died on the earth in these haunted mansions. But there are demonic spirits. So all of these illusions, is that what you're calling them? These supposed contacts with other spirits, is that demonic deception? To I get think it to is. That? I think it is. In fact, I, I think that uh, you know, in 2 Corinthians uh, 11, 14, uh, and, and verse 4, we are told that Satan can mimic an angel of light. And I've actually talked to some other apologists about this. If Satan can mimic an angel of light, he can also mimic a dead human. And I have to tell you something, folks. You know, when I do my research, I actually buy just tons and tons and tons of books on psychics and ghosts, and I read them all. I've read every book by every major psychic today, including John Edward, James von Prague, Char Margolis, and all of this. And, uh, you know, I do this as part of my research. I've got to tell you, that this is kind of funny, that Amazon sent me a whole, about 100 books. <laughs> and they called me and said, uh, Dr. Rhodes, we're not sure what happened, but the box has been obliterated. Every book has been shredded into little pieces, and we don't know how it happened. Hmm. But we will send you a new box. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe the devil doesn't want me to see those books. <laughs> then I'm thinking, maybe God doesn't want me to see, see those books. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, maybe the mailman had a bad day. That's what you I know? was thinking. So, He's a Christian post, post person who decided to shred them. So anyway, I, I not only read those books, but I actually go see these guys in person. You know, for example, I went to see Kevin Ryerson, who is the, uh, the psychic for Shirley MacLaine. And I've got to tell you, I witnessed demon possession. And this guy was claiming that there were, you know, uh, human beings who had died that were inhabiting his body. But Kevin Ryerson is what's called a full body medium. That means that the spirit inhabits his entire body and even has motions that he goes through. And it's the most unbelievable thing. I don't recommend that any of you do it. I do this for research purposes so I can write books to help the body of Christ. You know, that God has, has called me to this area. But I've got to tell you, there, there's definitely a demonic area, uh, you know, uh, aspect here. Another thing is, is that uh, it was actually me and Elliot Miller that were there. Elliot Miller is the editor-in-chief of the Christian Research Journal. So it was Elliot, me, and 2,000 New Agers. And towards the end of the session, Kevin Ryerson, the psychic, said, are there, are there any questions? And so one guy in the back raised his hand and said, well, I was listening to that Bible answer man last week, and they said there's a bunch of demonism going on. And I turned to Elliot Miller and I said, run for your life! You know, <laughs> see, it was me who had said that on the Bible answer man the previous week. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, there is a demonic element going on there. But I must also tell you, Skip, that uh, there's also some bogus stuff going on. Have you ever seen some of these psychics get up there in, in, in front of an audience of about 500 people, and they start saying you know, stuff like, Somebody here has a grandmother sure. with a name beginning with 
S or T or D, R, maybe C. Anyone here like that? There's bound to be somebody. And then they'll say, I sense that you have a piece of jewelry from them. I've seen that on uh, Christian television as well. Well, okay. (laughs) Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is that people want to believe. You know, obviously there's some bogus stuff going on here, but people want to believe so much. If there's any chance that you can get in contact with your dead loved one, people are just willing to overlook, you know, some of this garbage. Uh, They've even got excuses ready. In fact, James Von Prague and John Edward were, were on the Larry King show. Now, you talked about being Larry King. Okay. Well, they're both on the show, and James Von Prague, the psychic, was talking to an individual who had called in, and he said about 20 things in a row that were wrong. He didn't have a single hit. And so John Edwards said, I sense that this information is correct, but for a different person, perhaps in the next building over, or it may be a person who is not yet born, or perhaps a person that's already died, but the information is accurate. Interesting. See? So, I mean, this is the kind of stuff you run into. I, I, I hate to tell you that we're running out of time, but what about somebody like quickly, like David Blaine? Is that his name, the guy who does phenomena? Is that his name? Yeah, he does like, he looks like he levitates and he throws cards at different places. And Well, I think that what's going on here is there, there's some um, uh, sleight of hand going on. Uh, if you go to any Las Vegas magician act, you'll see similar things. True. And there have been Christian apologists who have actually examined this phenomena and deconstructed what's going on point by point. And, uh, you know, people who are being dishonest by doing these things are still influenced by Satan. You know why I say that? The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. So even if something supernatural is not taking place, Satan is still the father of lies, and those acting under his behest are still going to be manifesting that kind of dishonesty in trying to deceive people. Okay. And so I think that these are times for discernment, especially in the view, view of the fact that there's not just Christian Wiccans, but there's Christian psychics out there too who claim to have a gift of the Holy Spirit that enables them to contact the dead. These are days of discernment. Okay, so help us wrap this up and speak to believers here. Speak to parents who may not know that their kids are involved or they may know their kids are involved in paranormal activity. Um, It seems like what's going on is an indictment against the church in, in part. What I want you to do is kind of speak to us as we close about how we can reach those people. Okay, well, keep in mind, first of all, that among all teenagers in the United States, 28%, only 28% of those teenagers who are Christians, who attend church, only 28% say their church has prepared them in any way for understanding occultism and psychic phenomena. That means most churches are ignoring this stuff altogether, which, by the way, is why I commend you at this church for featuring apologetics conferences like this weekend to focus on stuff like this. And so what we need in the church is youth leaders who are on top of what's going on with, uh, you know, with our, our youth and addressing those very issues. And believe me, I am so sympathetic towards our youth leaders today. It's a tough job. Yep. Our teenagers have it tough, and any youth leader has it tough. But as an exhortation... I would exhort Christian youth leaders to get involved in that. Now, as far as parents are concerned, we've noticed that kids who are involved in the occult manifest certain symptoms. They have more anxiety. They have higher levels of depression. They tend to get isolationist, staying in their rooms for long periods of time. 
You might notice changes in their dress and their behavior. Uh, they can even become more suicidal. That doesn't mean if they get involved in the occult, they're going to commit suicide. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the statistical likelihood is higher for suicide among those involved in the occult than with the general population. So that's one of the things that parents need to do. They need to uh, monitor their kids and see if there's any changes taking place. But number two, quality time. You know, the statistics reveal that most parents, including Christian parents, spend very little quality time on a daily basis with their kids. You've got to have that time. And when I say quality time, I'm not saying watching a TV show together. I'm talking about face-to-face. Yes. And when you do that, the doors open up for communication. And those are the kind of parents that are going to discover what's going on with their kids. Well, speaking of face-to-face, we'd love the opportunity if after this service you would like to speak to a pastor or a counselor. They're going to be up front and in the prayer room. If there's something we can pray for or pray about with you, we'd love to do that. If you have questions about uh, what you've heard, you might be a skeptic and you've come to church but you haven't yet come to Christ, we'd love the opportunity to dialogue with you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to gather like this and, and hear Ron Rhodes and ask questions and speak about issues that are going on around us. And for some of us, they may be going on even in our own homes. We pray, Lord, that we as parents would be protectors of our children, integrate into their world, communicate honestly with them, effectively raise them. And we pray that you'd equip us, Lord, to be in this world, not of it, but to influence it for Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I know that when I go to the, be with the Lord, whether it's at the rapture or when I die, I'm going to see them there. And it all started with that, uh, that conversation I was having with uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Boone. And, and the Lord then touched five families on our block. Five more families became Christians. It's like the Holy Spirit was kind of going down the, the block there, touching people. And really the encouraging thing I want to let you know is, is probably in a group this size, some of you have family members who have not trusted in the Lord. It could be a mother or a father or grandparents maybe or a brother or a sister. You know, don't give up. The Lord can bring miracles like you, you never would believe. And in our case, the Lord didn't do it like we thought he would. The Lord knew better. The Lord knew that my parents needed to experience rock bottom before they saw their need for him. So you see, in hindsight, we look back on that experience and say, boy, God just acted in a way that was amazing because he knew exactly what had to happen for them to come to a point where they recognized their need for Jesus. And so I look back on those years and I just praise the Lord for it. And uh, I remember walking into my dad when he was on his deathbed. He had about two days left. Every day that I walked in there to see him, he was laying flat on his back and his, his arms were toward heaven. He's going, Lord, now, take me now. I'm ready to go. And, uh, you know, within a day, the Lord had taken him. And then more recently, my mom uh, went to be with the Lord. And I was with her, too, holding her hand when she passed. And, and uh, it was just the most amazing moment, precious moment. Uh, we were all sitting there together and she was cognizant. And she said, I'm going to die now. And then her face went blank. And it's like she heard an angel speak, or maybe the Lord speak, informing her that now was the moment, that she was going to pass right then and there, and then enter into glory. And then it was over, you see. And it was so simple. And the Bible tells us very clearly that to be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So glory to Jesus.
for all of this. Amen. 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 So, Ron Rhodes from bubblegum superstar to <laughs> Christian theologian, apologist, author of 60 books. I Rock have... and roll preacher. How's that? Hey, Rock there you go. That's Chuck work. Gerard would put it. Um, you like Chuck Gerard, right? He's good. Anybody heard of that? Yeah, a few people. If you have. haven't heard of Chuck Gerard, you need to go out and buy his record. He's got a, a, a song on there called Rock and Roll Preacher. Really good. Really good. Well, thank you. I'm sure he thanks you right now for yeah, that plug. Yeah, it's really good. Um, one of the books that I'm holding is called Five Minute Apologetics for Today. Yes. What is apologetics? It sounds like we apologize for something. Well, we're not apologizing. Really, we're defending. In fact, the Greek word for apologetics means, it means defense. And it might surprise you that even back in Bible times, defending Christianity became a very important fact or practice. Uh, for example, Jesus himself warned that there were people who were believing in a counterfeit Christ in Matthew 7 and Matthew 24. He also warned against false apostles. Uh, we read about uh, doctrines of demons, for example, and, and depart, departing from the faith in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4. Uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, we read about another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel. Certainly, we read about another gospel in Galatians 1.8. You know, they fell away from the true gospel. So even in Bible times, there were people believing wrong things. Now, here's the thing. God knows that false doctrine is injurious. It hurts people. You see, people can get injured when they believe the wrong thing. And, and if you were at the conference this weekend, well, you saw that to be true. But let me just say that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to remain in error. And that's why apologetics becomes necessary. We defend the faith. And, of course, uh, you know, one of the things that developed early on there in uh, the New Testament church was an error called Gnosticism, mm -hmm. a very big error. And John, John the Apostle actually knew a Gnostic called Serenthus. And Serenthus was out there teaching people in his own congregations. You know, he was influencing John's congregations, teaching that Jesus was just a human. And that there was this big, sort of a cosmic Christ that came down at Jesus' baptism and then indwelt Jesus for three years. And then later, at the crucifixion, this spirit left the human Jesus. And in between, this Christ spoke through the mouthpiece of the human Jesus to the disciples who were called the initiates. You see, and so it's, it's a bizarre theology. Now, John didn't want that to happen. So John, in his epistles, talks about the incarnation. And how when Jesus became a man, he was one person with a 100% divine nature and a 100% human nature, and it's a permanent thing. Even today, Jesus is the God-man. So John was engaged in apologetics. Huh. So do you think every Christian should be engaged in apologetics? I mean, you have the benefit of research and study, yes. years of doing this. You know, we have different lives and careers. Well, I think so. Um, in fact, I know so. When you look at the verses in Scripture that deal with defending the faith, uh, they're, they're written to just average Christians, you know, all of us. Uh, for example, in Jude 3, it says to uh, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That wasn't written to uh, pastors of a church, you know, like Skip. It was written to all of us. And certainly it includes you, but it includes all of you as well. All of us are to be about the business of defending the faith. That doesn't mean you've got to go out and get a seminary degree, Although if you want a seminary degree, Veritas Evangelical Seminary is a good place to go. It's a great seminary. But uh, let me just say this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you know the gospel, 
You know, if you come to church and you're, you're learning the Bible here at this church, you're equipped. You're equipped in your sphere of influence, in your neighborhood, uh, as you go to work, when you go shopping at a store, wherever you encounter people, you can be used to help defend the faith against errors. And here's something that's very helpful. If you're talking to somebody about the Christian faith and they say something that you don't understand or they ask you a question that you cannot answer, all you got to do is say, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure what the answer is. But let me do some research, and I'll get back with you. And then you can call Skip on his cell phone. And his <laughs> cell phone is... No. <laughs> so are you saying that it's not always about the answers, having the right well, answers? Well, I, I think that that's a, a pivotal part of it. In fact, there's a beef that I have against modern apologetics. And, and I don't say this in a mean-spirited way. I, I say this as a loving exhortation. And, and what I'm talking about is this. Um, apologetics is more than just having right answers from the Bible. Now, that's part of apologetics. We do need to have answers from the Bible. But that's not all of apologetics. Biblically, an apologist begins with the person who was so committed to Jesus Christ that they exude Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus just shines through their being so that when people see you, they can see that you're different. They can see that uh, that there's... A living Lord who has made a difference in your life. So put it this way. If, hypothetically, you were some cultist, okay, and you came across a Christian apologist who was very arrogant and unloving and had a spiritual chip on the shoulder and really wasn't very nice, but still he had really strong answers, would you listen to him? No, probably not. But if that person was just beaming Jesus full of the love of Jesus, so that you could really see the living Christ within that person, would you listen to his strong answers? Probably so. That's a biblical apologist, and I think that that relates to uh, 1 Peter 3.15, which says, always be ready to give an answer, but do so with gentleness and respect. And by the way, who does that sound like, gentleness and respect? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that's right. And so as we walk with Jesus, that attitude shows itself. To your own admission, you didn't start apologetics with that same tone and that same spirit, did you? Oh, man, I speak from experience. Tell us the truth now, Ron. I blew it big time. See, he he knows my history. Uh, I used to do it all wrong, and it's confession time. Okay, I'm going to get real with you. Uh, I didn't always hold this, this viewpoint. In fact, I used to do apologetics in all the wrong way. Uh, we would have Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons knock on our door, and I would open the door, and I would literally roast them theologically. <laughs> I now call that the flamethrower approach to evangelism. <laughs> you know, they ring the doorbell, they say hi, and I go, <laughs> and then after the smoke is clearing, you know, they, they don't convert for some strange reason. <laughs> they don't become a Christian for some strange reason, and they, they, they walk off. And it wasn't until I learned the importance of taking the first step of just plugging into Jesus, kind of like a a branch goes into a vine, and just committing myself completely to Jesus so that the love of Jesus would shine, that I started to see results. You see, people have to see that genuine, authentic relationship that you have with the Lord. And, you know, once they see that in you, once they see that there's something different then they're going to listen to you. And the barriers are going to come down. You know, when you show love to them, the love of Christ, the barriers come down so that they're going to listen to what you have to say. 
they're going to want to come back. In fact, we've had situations in our house where we've had Jehovah's Witnesses come back for a year and a half, like every week. And uh, it, it's just awesome. Did you ever lead any of them to Christ? Yes. That's Absolutely. Now, I, I need to be honest with you that not all of them turn to Christ, and I say that as an encouragement. Some of us plant seeds. Some of us water the seed. Some of us get the privilege of seeing the flower blossom. What I mean by that is that when a cultist comes on your, you know, to your doorstep, sometimes you just share the gospel with them, and they don't make a decision for Christ, but you have planted a seed. At other times, a cultist may come to your doorstep, and somebody's already planted a seed, but you continue to water that seed by sharing the gospel again and talking about who Jesus is. In still other cases, a cultist will come to your doorstep, and they've already had the seed planted, and other people talk to them. And for whatever reason, you know, God just opens their, their heart at the moment that they're with you, and they become converted. And I am just as pleased as punch to be able to tell you that through our ministry, virtually thousands of cultists have come to Christ out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all yeah. about. So, Ron, if somebody knocks on the door. We go home this afternoon. We get a knock on the door. It's a friendly neighborhood, religious cult, smiling. What should our response be? Should we invite them in? Well, you know, I asked that very question. Uh, I asked a, a large audience just like this. You know, if I knock on the door, now what do you say? Somebody in the audience said, go away. No, that's the wrong answer. Here's what your attitude should be. When they knock on the door, you consider it a kingdom assignment. It is a kingdom assignment. And that means that you're the witness for God that day. You know, the burden, to prove, the burden is off you in terms of conversion because God is the one who converts, not you. Only God can convert. But you are to be the faithful witness. And if the, you know, if the Dallas Cowboys or whoever it is you watch are coming on TV, then, you know, TiVo it. Get back to it later. Just take out some time, carve it out of your schedule, and consider it a kingdom assignment. You know, sometimes we all get different kinds of kingdom assignments. Do you know that one time, uh, this was about three or four years ago, uh, my back went out. Has anybody ever had their back go out? Oh, man, there's no pain like it. And so there I am, and I'm in bed for three months. Three months. I had to be in therapy. And so the Lord put me into therapy with this atheist. He was your therapist? My therapist. That's right. So he had no idea what he was getting into. At the end of our therapy, uh, three months later, he was back in church. He was, you know, he was a believer. Beautiful. You know, I mean, you never know what kind of kingdom assignment you're going to get. Okay, I have a kingdom assignment. All I know is you've got to be faithful when it happens. There's a kingdom assignment for you right now. All right. You ready? Uh Uh-oh. In our last session, we talked a little bit about the paranormal, the occult, ghosts, your take on are they real or not. We have a question that's been texted in based on that. And uh, I know you've been asked this before. It, it says this, If ghosts don't exist, what about the ghost of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 28? Yeah, that's an interesting account. And, and what happened there is that uh, I believe that Samuel actually came back. I don't believe that that was an impersonation by a demon, but I believe that it really was a one-time event that the Lord allowed, that for, the Lord allowed for Samuel to appear. And I want you to notice something in that text. The text indicates that when Samuel actually appeared, the medium or the witch shrieked with fear. She wasn't expecting it. She was up to her old tricks, you know, deceiving people like she was really in contact with the dead. And here Samuel really shows up and she shrieks with fear. 
And then what does Samuel do? Well, he pronounces judgment against Saul for what he did, Mm -hmm. you see. Now, theologians tell us that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. That's just a fancy way of saying that this describes an event that took place on one occasion historically. It does not prescribe something that we should expect in the future. It was a one-time event where God had a special purpose in allowing Samuel to pronounce judgment against Saul. That's a very good question. You see how quick he knew the answer to that? (laughs) That's very impressive. Well, that's a common question. It's it's amazing how many people are interested in in finding out about stuff like that. In fact, I was was doing a TV show about... uh, uh, three weeks ago on the uh, ABC Family Network, and that's one of the first questions that people came up with. And so for whatever reason, people want to know about the Witch of Endor. Now, you heard it here with the Larry King Show. Okay. <laughs> well, Ron, no, listen, I want to sh- I want to. Hey, sh- wait a minute. Now, Larry, why is it that you have so many psychics on your show if you're really Larry King? Well, you know, uh, uh, James Von Prague and John Edward and all those guys. Well, you, if you notice, Larry King is no longer the host of that show. Yes. You, you're, okay. Um, I want to just shift our focus to the other end of the spectrum. We've talked a lot about spiritualism and interest in paranormal in the yes. previous sessions. But, you know, we, we have here a number of college students who day after day deal with naturalism. It's not supernaturalism. It's the idea that nature explains everything. There's no room for miracles. There's no real supernatural world. It's all a myth. How do we deal with that? And and what would you say to that? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, Well, let me take it back a little bit further. It is true that once you go to college, the de facto philosophy is naturalism, this idea that you can dismiss with God, you can dismiss nature, I mean miracles, you can dismiss the supernatural. Uh, in fact, it was Carl Sagan who said that the universe is all that is, all that was, and all that ever will be. He made that point very clear. Now, of course, Carl Sagan is now dead. My wife, Carrie, is a school t- teacher in the sixth grade, so she teaches sixth grade Bible students, and she asked her class, do you think Carl Sagan still believes that? <laughs> and this cute little girl raised her hand, and she said, well, you know, Miss Rhodes, I think that when Mr. Sagan died... He said, oops. <laughs> it's funny, but That's, sad at the same time. It is time. sad. It is sad. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have written against, uh, you know, the supernatural. I think about Rudolf Bultmann, for example. Yes. He was a guy who said that we need to take all the myths out of the Bible, like the supernatural. I think about David Hume. David Hume was a guy that wrote a lot of books, and he talked about how the common experience that most people have is a uniform natural experience with the laws of nature. And since most people don't witness uh, miracles, I think that we can assume that miracles don't occur. That's basically his position. And here's the thing. Even though this happens in college, I, I think it is unwise for us as Christian parents to wait until our kids go to college before they get prepared for this. Because the Barna findings, the Barna statistics, he's a poster, a Christian poster, found that naturalism began making its way into the school systems in junior high and then in high school. And then what took place in college was, was things just broke wide open. It's kind of like a disease that has a, a germ that has a, a, a long period before it actually becomes active within your body. You know, our kids get exposed to naturalism in junior high. It's emphasized in high school with the teachings on evolution and so forth. And by the time they get to college, college professors are ridiculing uh, are, are, you know, students, Christian students. 
And as a result of that, many of the Christian students are actually bailing on, on Christianity. And it all rests on the foundation of science. And here's what I think, okay? Um, I think that one of the things that we're witnessing in our own day, which is making both evolutionists and naturalists really mad, is that the same science that has been the friend of naturalism for so long is now turning its back on naturalism and causing it to collapse. That's an interesting development. I'm talking about the intelligent design movement. You see, the science of intelligent design is now pointing out the flaws of naturalism because when you think about it, naturalism really can't explain things. Can I give you one example? Please. Uh, Consider DNA. DNA is a good example. You know, where did all the information in DNA come from? DNA has to do with the blueprints of life. All of us have it. In fact, there's more information in a single cell of DNA than in four complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Or another way to put it is if you took a stack of paperbacks so high that it goes from here to the moon and multiply it by 500, that's how much information is in a single cell of DNA. Where did it come from? Now, you know Bill Gates. Bill Gates said that what's in DNA is like software code, but much more complex. Now, don't get me wrong. Bill Gates is not a Christian. He is an unbeliever. But I find it interesting that he said that uh, DNA is like software code, but much more complex. You know, even Microsoft Word has millions of lines of code. It is very complex. But DNA is even more complex. So the question becomes this. Did Microsoft Word write itself, or was there a designer? (laughs) You get my point. There has to be a designer that came up with the DNA. And another thing that that, uh, the naturalist can't explain is how these DNA cells relate to evolution. You see, if evolution were true, we would expect there to be, you know, an introduction of all kinds of new information into DNA so that you could grow a wing or maybe an eyeball or, or different parts of the body over many millennia, over thousands of years. And that's what evolutionists say, one mutation at a time. The problem is this. With mutations, new information is not added. With mutations, information is deleted like a typing error, leaving out a letter. So this whole thing about DNA cannot possibly support this evolutionary hypothesis. So, back to my original point. The science that was one time the friend of naturalism has actually turned its back on naturalism. And that's one of the reasons why I think you've got so many atheists and naturalists up in arms. I mean, they're getting kind of mad, and they're starting to shout a lot. And it's kind of like that preacher who wrote uh, in in the column of his Bible when he was preaching a sermon. It says, weak point, pound the pulpit. (laughs) You know, that's what these new atheists are doing. They're They're, shouting us down, but see, their their system is disintegrating. They're running out of ammo. Really, I think that uh, from the Christian viewpoint, um, we do believe in a world of nature, and we do believe in the laws of nature. But keep in mind something very important. The laws of nature are not causal. In other words, when you throw an apple over a cliff and it falls, it is not the law of nature that is causing it to fall. Rather, the law of nature is an observation about how reality normally operates in nature. And the thing of it is, is that God is the one who created nature that way. Christ is the sustainer of the universe, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3. He sustains everything by his powerful word. 
If there wasn't gravity, we'd all be going flying off the planet right now. The law of nature simply describes the way nature normally operates when not, uh, you know, um, when not dictated upon or overruled by a superior power. Can I give you an example? You can quickly, because I have another follow-up question. The, the example would be this. If I jump off a cliff, down I go, splat. Okay? Pardon the graphics. Uh, if I jump off a cliff with a hang glider, there's going to be a different result. Now, the law of nature has not been, been violated, but the law of nature has been superseded by a higher law, the, liar, the law of aerodynamics. That's what happens when a miracle happens. The laws of, of uh, nature are not done away with, but rather... God's law, his supernatural power, uh, supersedes the law of nature. So that's the way that the Christian views it. That's a good way to frame it. That's very helpful. Uh, we have a text question that goes along with some of the naturalistic things we were talking about. Okay. This is a question really from paleontology. Okay. And uh, it was texted in this question. How come human bones are not found fossilized with dinosaur bones from the flood? Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, there have been claims of human bones being found next to dinosaur bones. There has been some writing about this. I think the more interesting question is, why is it that we find a sudden explosion of fossils on the Cambrian la layer of strata? Now, here's why that's important. If evolution were true, what you would expect to see on the lowest strata of rock would be simple life forms, bugs, you know, stuff like that. On the next layer slightly more complex life forms. On the layer above that, slightly more complex life forms. On and on up to the present, where we've got complex life forms with us who have hands. And, and that would support the theory of evolution. That would support the theory of evolution. But what we actually see is that on the Cambrian strata of rock, all the life forms emerge suddenly. And in fact, it's been called the Big Bang, the big bang of Fossils. All the life forms that are essentially still existent in our day, found themselves on the Cambrian strata, a single layer. And you have to ask yourself, how did that get there? I believe that that happened at the flood. It was a catastrophic event. You see, what happened at the flood is, is that when the water engulfed the earth, all the living creatures that died, you know, they, they got meshed in with the mud, and then layer upon layer of mud came upon that until it fossilized, it hardened, you see. And so I believe that that's what explains why suddenly on a single strata of rock you find all of these different, uh, you know, different kinds of fossils. In terms of the dinosaurs, I believe that the Bible actually makes reference to dinosaurs. I'm talking about the, the Levi Leviathan. Leviathan and Job. And, and, and the, uh, the behemoth. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of those are apparently like a giant sort of an maybe a brontosaurus-type creature. It talks about how, how it has a, a long tail, kind of like a, like a big cedar tree, yes. that, that sort of thing. And so it seems to be that uh, the, the dinosaurs were not something that preceded uh, you know, everything else in, human, in, in history of the earth, but rather was part of God's creation. And, and who knows, there could have been dinosaurs even upon the ark. Uh, according to some uh, young earth uh, uh, scholars. Let me throw another scientific question out. This is also a text. What is the argument to the atheist who brings up carbon dating and the age of the earth? What does the Bible say about that? Well, I, I think that, uh, number one, you've, you'd be wrong to put all your faith in science. And, and it's not that I am doing away with the importance of science. For example, when I'm sick, I want to go to a doctor who uses the scientific method to figure out what I got you know, going wrong 
so he can give me a good medicine. Okay? I do believe that science is a very helpful endeavor. But one of the things I pointed out earlier is that scientific paradigms do change and scientists do change their minds about things in terms of even the dating system. And there have been some experiments done with carbon dating uh, that have proved the inaccuracy of carbon dating in certain contexts, especially like in regard to like molten rock that's come out of a volcano. And so some of those experiments have seemed to undermine that. But I would also say in terms of the age, the apparent age of the earth, the way that I look at it is that uh, God very likely did build age into his creation. And I say that because, you know, when God created Adam and Eve, they were full-grown adults. Uh, all the trees and the bushes were full-grown, and the trees, you know, apparently still had rings and everything. Uh, everything had the appearance of age, so why not the earth have the appearance of age? They even saw stars. And it, as you know, it can take many years before the light from the stars True. gets to the earth. And yet they talk about how they saw the stars. And so God apparently also included the light that was in transit from the stars. So to me, as part of the original creation, God, God created with the appearance of age. And so that to me is not a crisis to faith. Uh, I don't know all the answers scientifically, but as I have stated before, if I'm ever going to err, my choice is to err on the side of interpreting the Bible literally uh, and not on the side of trying to make my theology fit science to be compatible with it. Uh, I do believe that with each of the issues that we're talking, particularly as related to the young earth versus old earth issue, there are enough alternative viewpoints that could fit either scenario. Hmm. And let me just also emphasize again, Skip, that there are good Christians on both sides of that debate. I'm young earth. I interpret it quite literally in Genesis. But I do know some uh, very good Christians who, who differ with me. And I'm going to keep on talking to them about that. But, uh, but uh, I think one day when we're all in heaven, the Lord will set them straight. So it'll be really no. good. <laughs> hey, we have to wrap this up. We've had really good sessions with you, Ron. Oh, it's I, been I a pleasure. I want you just to finally speak to the skeptic who may be here today or listening on the webcast or by radio. They've come. They're interested. They're listening. Their friends have kind of dragged them here. Talk to them. What's the next step? Well, let me just tell you this. Uh, I, I wasn't some person who just blindly decided to come to faith in Jesus. I'm a person who likes evidence. And one of the reasons I went out and bought all those books I talked about after talking with Shirley Boone is because I like the evidence. And the more evidence I looked at, especially prophetically, uh, the more I saw that the Bible was reliable. Now, here's something to think about. If a book in your hand accurately prophesies hundreds and even thousands of years and events things that are going to take place in the future. Do you know any human who can do that? I don't. In fact, only God can do that. This might be a book that you want to examine. Not only that, but when you consider the fact that archaeologically there's been over 25,000 sites that, dis that have been discovered which prove the veracity of people, places, and events in Bible times, and many of those discoveries have been from non-Christian archaeologists who don't have a bias. Combine that with the fact that we've got such massive manuscript evidence that it is absolutely sure that we've got an accurately transmitted Bible. And you know something? Even if we lost all of our New Testament manuscripts, we've got enough quotations in the church fathers alone that we could reconstruct all but 11 verses of the New Testament. I mean, I could just go on and on to point out the reliability and the evidence, not only for the Bible, but for the truth about God in terms of intelligent design, 
in terms of the cosmological evidence and the, the teleological evidence. This is a, the design in the universe and so forth. That it's overwhelming. So my challenge to you is this, especially if you're a skeptic. Before you make your final decision, don't you want to make an informed decision? Don't you want to look at the evidence? Don't you want to consider all the sides of the story before you come down and make a decision that's going to have eternal consequences? You see, that's what I think you ought to do. And I want to make myself available to you. I've given my email out address to, to previous services. And I'm going to give it to you right now. It's Ron Rhodes at earthlink.net. Ron Rhodes at earthlink.net. And if you're a skeptic or an atheist or even if you're a Christian, you can feel free to email me and I'll dialogue with you about the evidence for Christianity. Well, that's great. Can't get so, any better than that. Amen. The go-to guy just gave you his email address. <laughs> and let me remind you. Let me just remind you of Skip's cell phone number, in case you need <laughs> it. <laughs> well, why don't you all stand, would you? And give another um, round of thanks to uh, Ron for being here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. All right, wait. Ron, you can't leave yet. <laughs> we want to pray for you. Oh, good. Father, Amen. we thank you for Ron and for his ministry, for the many years he's invested in the body of Christ, the 60 books that have provided such rich resources to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the way he thinks so clearly and objectively. And Father, we pray your hand of blessing upon his life, yes. his family, his ministry, that, that um, more of this could continue with him. And Father, we pray for anyone who has come today who may not know Jesus personally, that they would come to the same end in their reasoning that Ron and so many of us have, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.